Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnicwear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicwear on Instagram at Picnicwear, and that's where W E A R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope ass shit for dope ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. With an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between, Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of May, St. Evans is supporting Labor Behind the Label, an anti-sweatshop campaign working to improve conditions and empower workers in the global garment industry. 
New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that thinks it's very boring to talk about itself. Which is why I'm jumping in today to interview Amanda and insist <laughs> that she could never, ever bore us. Oh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, and for those who don't recognize my voice, I'm Carrie, the executive editor of CloseHorse.world. And today we're going to do something a little different. Um, instead of listening to Amanda share her research, respond to hotline calls, and interview guests, she is going to be interviewed by me. <laughs> I approached Amanda about doing this because as a Close Horse listener, my ears always perk up when Amanda tells us a little bit about herself, and I've been wanting to connect the dots between the personal stories that Amanda has offered on the pod so far. And Amanda, my hope is that we can draw connections between your personal experiences and the theme that you've exploring this month, which is workers' rights. Yeah, I mean, this is a major thing for me. It is not my comfort zone. I definitely was raised in an environment where the most one of the most embarrassing things you could do was talk about yourself. So <laughs> I'm used to not talking about myself, but I definitely agree that so much of my identity has been wrapped up in my work. And I can also see how the adults around me, you know, growing up in a working class environment really shaped my views of work and inequality. And I'm just going to go ahead now and give a little trigger warning here. It feels very weird, very wild to give my life, my life, a trigger warning. But alas, I am a trigger warning. Uh, I'm a survivor of some serious trauma from my childhood and my adult life. So that might not be something you want to hear about. And in that case, I would recommend checking out my essay, my recent essay at CloseHorse.World about creativity and capitalism to get a better feel for who I am without all the other stuff. You can also check out episode 75 where I talk to Meg about that essay. We, you know, we just talk about our lives. Yeah. No, Amanda, I really appreciate you opening up on this episode. And um, I, I know that everyone who listens to Close Horse is rooting for you and feels like they know you personally. And this is just going to deepen our relationship. So thank you. <laughs> so um, Amanda, one of the things I know about you is that you've always dreamed about writing a book. And as you know, my background is in the publishing industry. And what you maybe don't know um, is that I've actually dreamed about wor working in fashion somehow. So to each other, our career paths represent a road not traveled. Yeah, you know, I will say that uh, 
all many times in my career when I was like, fuck this job. <laughs> like, I hate this job. How did this happen to me? And maybe I follow, fell into some like wallowing and self-despair as we all do, right? I would remember, and this is, I'm not saying that this is a good coping mechanism by any stretch of the imagination, but I would say, you know what, this, you have someone's dream job right now. Um, Reading your essay about creativity and capitalism and your experience working in the publishing industry, I was like, oh, right. Okay. So that's not my dream job either, it turns out. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the reasons why I never pursued a path in fashion is that it's pretty well advertised, that it's a miserable industry to work in. And my impressions of that definitely predate the Devil Wears Prada. So, you know, I'm not really sure how I gleaned that there was something superficial and maybe morally bankrupt about being in fashion. But one of the reasons why I latched onto Clothes Horse is that you've been pulling back the curtain on all of it. And so you confirmed some of my assumptions about what a rough trade it is to be in. But you have also revealed another layer of worker exploitation that I honestly hadn't given much thought to. Um, which is the treatment of garment workers all the way through the supply chain. Yeah, I mean, I think the industry is rotten from top to bottom. You know, uh, my experiences working in the corporate side have been really negative, but I know that, you know, the working experiences for people working in the warehouses, in the garment factories, in the retail stores are also similarly, similarly terrible. And I think it begins at the top. I've often wondered wondered if many people in leadership roles in the fashion industry have watched The Devil Wears Prada and assumed it was a documentary, perhaps one of those like <laughs> manager development training films that you might have to watch in for an HR thing. And cuz I just I just can't I can't understand it. Like with the exception of one job, all of the other places I've worked, the office, the corporate buying team, design, everything, it was so toxic so backstabby. And I don't know why. Like it it implies that terrible people are drawn to fashion and I just refuse to believe that. Yeah. But my first week in buying, I witnessed senior buyers who had considerably more experience than me that were grown ass women making one another cry in a meeting. I have seen bullying of lower level employees regarding their bodies, what they ate, how they dressed. It's just so much day-to-day cruelty. And these lower-level employees are like, this is supposed to be my dream job. I got to just get through this. I have to put up with whatever they dish out. And my experiences working in retail were similarly just shitty and cruel and exploitive. And Labor Month has been really getting the wheels, the gears, I guess, turning in my brain about how it's time for a change. That if I don't speak openly about the things that I've seen, that I've seen my friends experience, that I know others are experiencing, this is never going to change. And you should never feel like you go to work and get treated like a piece of garbage and you're supposed to take it. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, There's a lot of discussion now, I think, around workplace bullying and obviously levels of harassment that are actually illegal. In the mm-hmm. workplace, bullying, unfortunately, isn't one of them. I know. Uh, so ridiculous. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you've been kind of starting to make some connections, which we can explore more today about how you were kind of inured to bullying through the things that you experienced in your own life, you know, as a kid, as a teenager, that maybe made you feel like you had to tolerate what was going on. I'm also just really interested in talking about 
the connection between taste and class and those constructs which reinforce that there's a difference between people who have money and those who don't, you know, an essential difference. And this difference reinforces how people are treated in our society. And fashion is really entrenched in class difference because clothes are marketed to, you know, supposedly different tiers of customers. So it kind of reinforces class differences, but it also promises a way to transcend class. You know, if you like buy a certain dress, you'll look expensive. So we have a lot to talk about. We have a lot to navigate. <laughs> we we sure do. We sure do. I mean, I I think of class a lot more than maybe a lot of other people do on a daily basis. And that's not something I always actively thought about, but in the past few years has become more and more apparent to me as I finally ask myself, why do I feel different from the people around me? And why do I feel like I have to hide who I am? And that was when I started to really see the way class was playing out both around me, like socially and in the workplace, in the industry, you know, and that, uh, I mean, it's a heady topic. Talking about class is very awkward for a lot of people. It's really clear that taste and class is is kind of a constant conversation in fashion that's just happening without it really even being discussed. And, you know, you entered into this workforce that I understand, you know, in the fashion industry is really dominated by a lot of privileged people. I I felt in my own industry in publishing that it was clearly one that had been started out of privilege. You know, a lot of publishing companies were started by wealthy white men. And the way these industries are set up, the entry-level jobs, particularly on the creative side, are so low-paying that you kind of need another means of income or support in order to even entertain the idea of breaking in. So, you know, we're going to talk about how you broke in. And how that made you, you know, someone who was just more perceptive of how class was coming up and being discussed and handled at the workplace and how, you know, people who tend to sort of just, I guess, fit in with within that environment, you know, within that culture wouldn't know it and how there's just been a big reckoning with all of that recently. Yeah, uh, I was telling you as we were preparing for this episode, a story uh, that took place last year, so not even that far back in my life. And it was in the early days in the pandemic when I had been furloughed. And it's hard to go back to a time after everything we've been through in more than a year and imagine that there was this time where maybe this was all going to end in a few weeks, right? That it was a temporary thing. And that's, you know, that's where our mindset, everybody's mindset was like, oh, it'll be gone by summer. I know Trump was saying it was going to be gone by Easter. We all knew that was ridiculous, but we had this idea that by summer life was going to go back to normal. And so I was on furlough and, you know, I, I, I was like, I didn't like this job. I think I'm guessing a lot of people who are listening to this who have been furloughed probably found themselves really torn about what they wanted to happen next. On one hand, for me, it was like the anxiety of like, I must go back to this job because we are financially ruined if I don't. Mm -hmm. And then the other half of me was like, God, I can't go back to that job. I hated it so much. It gave me so much anxiety. I was so miserable. Uh, please don't make me have to go back to that job. But then feeling mm -hmm. guilty and being like, no, you must go back to that job, right? So I was like, you know what? 
I'm just going to get a different job. Like this is a great time. I mean, you know how it is when you're working, you don't have time to look for a job because it is a full-time job. And early in the pandemic, there were still jobs. There were still fashion companies that were hiring. And so I had a variety of interviews, all fast fashion, because that's what my background is. That makes me very desirable to a lot of fast fashion retailers because I have a very golden resume when it comes mm-hmm. to the brands I've worked with. And I was talking to someone, I I don't want to name the company. I don't want to like blow them up here, but it is one of the fastest fast fashion brands out there. The recruiter said, you know, your taste is legendary in the industry. We would be honored to hire you. And I was like, wow, like I have heard that this place is a toxic viper's nest. But on the other hand, they would move us back to LA and, you know, I would have a job and I wouldn't have to go back to this other job that makes me like throw up at lunchtime. Maybe yeah. this is a great idea. Of course, it would have been just trading bad for bad. You know, I, I know that now. Um, yeah. I did, Fortunately, I didn't have to make that decision because a couple of weeks later, all business was like, yeah, this isn't getting better anytime soon. And so all the jobs went away. They're still not back except for like entry-level fashion jobs, you know? I think about that, like having legendary taste as someone who grew up lower class. And I think it's really interesting, you know, to think about me being this person with legendary taste, supposedly, because I never planned a career in fashion. I didn't even know buying was a job. I don't know how stuff ended up in stores, but like I didn't think about it. It just did. And I happened into a job because I was working retail. I literally had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I had actually been thinking because at this point I'd been working retail for a couple years and I was a manager and it sucked. I worked all the time and still was living paycheck to paycheck. I had this idea that I might go back to school and and become a nurse. Oh, wow. Because that seemed like solid employment. Yeah. You know, Dylan and I would never have to worry about our financial future. We could live anywhere. Yeah. Uh, it just seemed like solid middle class, ticket to middle class, right? Yeah. And that's what I was really thinking. And right around that time, as I was starting to look into this and like, you know, trying to figure out how I can make it happen financially, uh, we had a bunch of visitors from the home office, like executives, come to the store. Um, I gave them a walkthrough and like talked about product opportunities and whatnot. Not because I was thinking like this was going to lead to something for me, but because I'm just, I think about these things and, you know, I think human nature is really fascinating. That's what I actually, I think, love about buying is trying to understand people. Mm -hmm. And at the end, they said to me, how would you like to come back to the East Coast and be a buyer for us at the home office? And I laughed because that seemed impossible. Mm. Why would that happen? Two weeks later, they flew me out there. I had an interview. I started working there. And I was the first person who they had brought from the stores to the home office in more than 10 years because there was this very widely held belief, and I'm not saying that this is true or accurate, that the people who worked in the stores were not very educated, not very smart, Mm -hmm. certainly couldn't come in and, you know, make them millions of dollars with their decisions. And I was very clearly told things like that. Like one person who I know was always very supportive of me, actually, and I know that he didn't mean this in a negative way because he was always my biggest fan and angling for me to get promotions and stuff. He said, we would have never guessed we could find someone as educated and intelligent as you working in the stores. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I know. I know. And that was my first dose of like, I'm the weird outsider who came from working in the stores. I'm a little bit older than everyone else at my level because I've already been working in this other way. And 
I don't have like, my family didn't pay for me to go to college, to go to fashion school, to learn about how to be a buyer. You know, like I, I was there from a completely different path and I was acutely aware of that. You know, they would come to me to ask me questions about how things worked in the store. Yeah. And yeah. like nobody knew, no one had ever worked retail before. I think this is a theme that we'll keep coming back to over and over again, how you didn't feel like a fit in the industry, how you passed. Yeah. And I'm so intrigued by all of that. So, you know, I know that you didn't want to have a let's begin at the beginning and, you know, work chronologically (laughs) through my life type of conversation. But right. I still feel like I have so many, you know, fundamental questions and I'm sure other listeners do too. So if you don't mind, um, I I would love to ask you some questions about your background. Sure. Sure. All right. Okay. So um, let's start with where you came from, because you've mentioned coming from a working class background. Can you describe for us where you're from exactly, you know, and, and, what the general socioeconomic makeup of that area, or maybe even just what kind of work your parents did, um, or your grandparents or extended family, like what kinds of work and workers were you exposed to when you were growing up? Sure. I grew up in rural Pennsylvania and you have to remember that rural America in the 80s and 90s was very different than rural America of now because we didn't have internet, right? So Growing up in a rural area was incredibly isolating. Uh, It was, I mean, literally the only music I heard until elementary school was country music, literally, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had to drive very far to get groceries, to do any sort of shopping. We did not have cable television until I was a teenager because you couldn't get cable television in the country. Like, if you were sort of bougie or like to spend money that you didn't have, you could get a satellite dish, but we we weren't like that. And also these satellite dishes were like the size of a car. So they were yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> I I had it my one of my uncles had one and we thought like, whoa, my uncle is so rich. He gets like one thousand channels, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like NASA level equipment in your backyard. Yeah. It really silly to think about how huge those were. Yeah. Um I I think that my more extended family was once more lower middle class, maybe even middle middle class after World War II. My grandparents, I mean, they lived that middle class dream that, you know, people got to live after the war, right? Where the husband could have a blue collar job, the wife could stay at home, they could still have a nice house. It's like the Simpsons, right? Mm-hmm. That was my family yeah. in so many ways, this impossible dream now that could never exist in today's world. But they had, a, my grandparents owned a really cute mid-century ranch house in a middle-class subdivision in York, Pennsylvania. They had a swimming pool. They had a bar in the basement, even a dishwasher, uh, a living room that was just for decoration, you know, like very Ooh, classic yeah. middle-class, middle America of the mid-century kind of thing. And my grandparents were divorced and remarried before I was born. 
when my biological grandfather and my grandmother divorced, my mom said that men were literally lining up around the block to date her. She said, and my mom would say literally. So I'm assuming that men were waiting outside. I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe she meant figuratively and couldn't think of the right word, but I'm just, I'm just quoting it as I've been told. They were yeah. waiting in line to date her because she was just so cute and fun. She'd been so popular in school. People just loved her in the area. One of them offered to buy her house, a bigger house. Um, these old man bachelors would still come to all of her holiday parties when I was a kid and they would always give me $5 bills and candy and tell me I was pretty like my grandma, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I just remember them always being around all these old men (laughs) (laughs) and for years. So my, you know, my grandma got married, both my grandparents got remarried pretty fast. Um, and my grandmother and my step-grandfather Les, he was amazing. He was my grandfather, you know, we would watch the news together every night and he would brag to anyone who listened about his genius grandchild. Like he thought I was a genius from moment one and they ran a seafood wholesale business. That sounds fancier than it really was, but they sold seafood to grocery stores and restaurants in the area. I don't even think this could happen in an era of like how all food is like conglomerate now, you know, like Cisco would have swooped in on that or, you know, all the grocery store chains are much larger now, but yeah, it was very basic. You know, they had a couple of small rented, like leased refrigerated trucks that my grandfather and my uncles would drive to like Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, literally to the fishing docks and buy the seafood, bring it back and store it in a rented refrigerated unit and then deliver it to customers. And my grandmother handled all of the business, like the invoicing, the accounting, all the glad handing. Like she is a charmer. Sounds like it. <laughs> uh, a born saleswoman for sure. And, you know, they did okay. They were middle class. My grandparents' business gave me access to some middle class niceties when my mom would allow it. But it was still, it was a very blue collar, flying by the seat of your pants kind of business. Hard work for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. In junior high, their business went bankrupt after some tax issues. Basically, my grandparents had brought my uncle into the business, the one with the satellite dish, and he had been embezzling the money that was supposed to go to the IRS. So the IRS took my grandparents' house where I'd practically grown up. My uncles and my mom had grown up there too. Uh, They took that. They took everything they owned. And they had, my grandparents then had to move into a trailer out on the other side of the county. So now not only was the hub for our family gone, They were like Mm. two hours away. It was really far away to go see them. My grandma got a job waiting tables at the American Legion, which is like, it's like a social organization, social group, social club, I guess, for people who served in the armed forces, predominantly like senior citizens, you know, like older people. And she loved that there. She was very popular. She, as far as I can tell, was making a wild amount of money waiting tables there <laughs> because people really liked her. And she would have me, if I was staying over at her house, help her count all her money, which she carried around in one of those like leatherette bank, like zip pouches that banks used to give yeah. you. Um, and I would like count all the money for her. And I mean, I was like in middle school, but I remember thinking like, my grandma is so rich. I think I'm going to wait tables when I grow up. And <laughs> she only stopped a few years ago, actually like waiting tables because my grandfather's dementia required full-time care. But she really loved that. Like we come from a family that works. And my grandma loves working with people and being around people. Like you can tell that's her favorite part of it. Whereas my mom hated working, 
resented it, but felt like it was just something you had to do and you just had to suck it up and work all the time. And that's just how it is. So very different approaches or attitudes, I guess, about work, but both doing a lot of it. Yeah. Um, well, I'm already in love with your grandmother and um, she just sounds like she's got the power of attraction. In she, so does. Many ways. she does. She so. does. It's wild. I, I don't understand it. Um, but I mean, I get it because I've been under her spell since I was a child. I want to zoom out and talk about the implications of the loss of your grandparents' business because they were self-employed. They were, you know, they had, they were entrepreneurs and they employed others and, Losing everything meant the loss of several jobs and it meant, uh, you know, the safety net of home ownership was lost. And, you know, it, it sounds like it, it launched them into just a state of, of downward mobility. And, you know, I have to say I'm not an expert at all. I really don't know anything about the ramifications of tax evasion, but this just seems incredibly disproportionate in terms of a penalty. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. When you think about how the tax code is structured for huge corporations, uh, which don't pay anywhere near their share of the tax burden. So, you know, I would imagine that losing this business had a significant impact on your family's trust in the government. And would you mind speaking to that? I mean, I definitely come from a family that is pretty politically apathetic because not because they don't care what happens, but their feeling is that the government only cares about rich people. And I know that that is not an unusual sentiment, but that the government will destroy everyone else. And so it's not like people in my family vote, Mm -hmm. you know, like I know some people have had to struggle with like people in their family voting for Trump. And I'm like, no, my family believes so little in government that none of them vote. They always used to laugh at me for all my obsession with voting when I was younger. (laughs) That is something that maybe has set me apart from my family is that I have always felt like, no, there's got to be a way we can change things. So it just has to be. Yeah. Whereas the rest of my family has been like, nah, it just sucks to be us. That's how it is. You know, mm-hmm. get yourself a satellite dish and live the best life you can because you're not going to make it any better. And I, I mean, that that's, that's hard, you know, like that's a, those are hard conversations to have with people who are just like, no, life sucks, accept it. And that's like to grow up in that environment can be, extremely discouraging. I can see more easily how those views would be inherited easily. It's much harder to imagine, you know, the point of view that you've taken, which is to continue to try to be optimistic and find your power. I think that's a really interesting departure point, you know, from your own family, the culture of your family and and where you've gone. Um, But I do understand why your folks would feel the way they do. I'm, I'm going to connect dots between um, little fragments that I remember from other Close Horse episodes. And one that stood out to me was um, when you were talking to Jessica from Fab Scrap um, about your family. And in that, in that episode, I'll paraphrase, you mentioned that uh, people in working class jobs are undervalued socially because their intelligence isn't seen. And you made a point of saying that you know how resourceful, creative, intelligent, and interesting people are, regardless of the status or perceived status of their jobs. So could you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, I know you, you've talked about your grandmother, um, and maybe you can tell us more about how um, the people in your life made a really big impression on you in that way. Yeah, I mean, 
even though I grew up in this working class environment, I definitely had this idea that like people who go to college and have white collar jobs are smarter than people who work in blue collar jobs. And that couldn't be further from the truth, especially now, but Mm -hmm. also back then. First off, college doesn't make people smarter. In many cases, it doesn't even make people more educated or resourceful or talented, right? And so my grandmother is a business genius. I mean, she could talk anyone into anything. She's a great negotiator. She is not afraid to have tough conversations. She got married when she was 14, which blows my mind thinking about when I was 14. She grew up in a in a very small town with no options. Uh, it was a shotgun marriage. We have a lot of that in our family. But I think if she were born when I when I was, she would be a CEO somewhere. She's just so smart, such a creative thinker. She has a really good idea of aesthetics even now. Mm-hmm. And just an incredibly talented person. And I guess I'm realizing as I'm talking that you're going to notice a pattern where the women in my family had far more influence over me than any of the men who came in and out of my life. My uncles, they're fine. They're scoundrels, whatever. I loved my step-grandfather. He was a delight. He always was wearing a great suit. He was very smart. Mm-hmm. But it's the women who really impacted me the most. I I don't speak to my mom anymore, but I have to tell you that she is so smart with math, accounting, et cetera. I'm sure that's where I get my math skills from. Mm-hmm. I think in a different time, under different circumstances, she could have done something else too. And I think the difference between her and my grandmother that makes my grandmother maybe like a more positive force is that my mom is aware that she could have done something else in a different time, under different circumstances. Mm. And my grandma's kind of like, whatever, life's great, you know? Yeah. Uh, My uncles are scammers and schemers. Mm -hmm. Uh, But my uncle George, the one who embezzled the money, is also really fucking smart. (laughs) Like. He's always scamming someone. Wow. Uh, I can't even understand the degree of some of these scams. Uh, He's, you know, you got to give him credit. Yeah. Like, he's not necessarily doing illegal scams, but they're like, it's it's all scammy. (laughs) I guess I'm just still stunned by the idea of your grandparents moving into a trailer because of him, but... You know, he lives. Dude, I mean, I like it would be a whole podcast just to talk about my mother's family, who is insane. Uh, Growing up in that environment, I thought it was normal for people to punch each other in the face at Christmas. Mm -hmm. I actually hated holidays because everybody was mad. If you didn't hug someone, Mm -hmm. there could be month long repercussions. My grandmother is very much like, well, these are my kids and I have to love them no matter what. And that is her approach to it. I, I doubt that my grandfather felt the same way. I'm sure he was like, you ruined our life, you know? Yeah. Your biological grandfather, did he move far away from the family? Like, did your step-grandfather kind of become more present in your life than than he was? Well, my grandfather was just very stoic. Um, Mm. He kind of looked like Elvis. Uh, So I could see why my grandmother was obsessed with him. Mm. Um, But they had a really ugly divorce in a time when people didn't really get divorced. Like my mom, I remember telling me, was like so filled with shame to go to school when people found out that her parents were getting a divorce. Um, There was a lot of violence in the home. And, you know, my, it turned out that my grandfather had been having an affair for years. Uh, So they, they, it was very acrimonious, but my step-grandmother Doris is amazing. She managed a like cafeteria at a factory for most of her, her life. Um, And she's just like really good at 
cooking and she's really smart. Like another just hustler who's out there, like, you know, doing things that require an incredible amount of skill and strategy and critical thinking that you don't think about. But like, she's like, you know, has a budget to meet and stretching meals and making them profitable. And like, I mean, you know, these are serious. This is serious business, but you don't think about it because you're like, oh, it's a cafeteria. Yeah, no, that, um, that sounds like a hard job. Um, I did waitress briefly and I was like, well, I better figure out something else because (laughs) I can't use the register and get people meals out strategically on time. So yes, a lot of respect on all of that, all of those levels of management. Yes, for sure. For sure. So, you know, your, your grandmother, I know is, is so important to you and you spent a lot of time with her and that she was really critical in your upbringing. And I always presumed that your parents split up when you were really young. Can you tell me a little bit more about them? Yeah. Well, my parents, you know, it's like a family tradition, uh, that I've broken. Uh, my parents married quite young, uh, shotgun wedding, another one, and they, they were divorced within a few years. I have no memories of them together, but (laughs) it's hard for me to see them together because they're so different. How were they ever married? It makes no sense to me. I know that you're supposed to fantasize that your parents are going to get back together, but like I would be so upset if my parents (laughs) did. (laughs) Um, My mom, however, growing up, um, my mom is a if you've listened to the show, the little bit I've talked about my mom, my mom is a very dark person. I don't know if that's because she's a Scorpio. I don't want to shame all the other Scorpios, but she does have that like Scorpio vibe, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. She would yeah. always tell me that it was actually my fault that they'd split up because I had cancer and that destroyed their relationship. Mm-hmm. And I always believed that. Mm-hmm. I totally internalized it. As an adult, of course, like I understand relationships more. And like I said, I cannot imagine my parents married at all. Um, I did not see my dad again until my late teens. And that was, that was hard. I actually just thought I didn't have a dad. How old were you when they split up? I feel like I was between two and three because there were a lot of splitting up and getting back together. I can't remember any of this because I was mostly in the hospital at that point. So like I, I wasn't around it. Um, and yeah. yeah, they they split. My mom has crazy stories about it. I don't know if they're true or not. My dad has different stories. Who I I can't. I don't know. I don't remember it. I didn't see my dad again until I was sixteen. That was it. Was strange. Um, as we get to, I had a lot of stepfathers. Um, my mom has been married seven times. Half of those marriages wow. happened before I was seven. So a lot of upheaval. A lot of moving around. Yeah. So much drama arguing. And you have to also remember that I was being treated for cancer at the same time. Like it's a wild and crazy blur. I am a very anxious adult, but I don't remember a moment when I haven't had really bad anxiety. And I think this is probably where it starts because, you know, it's like too much, too much. My dad, I didn't see him again. Like I said, until I was 16, I was home after school one day. I answered the phone. It was this man who on the phone claimed to be my father. And he was crying. Wow. Um, that was that was a weird situation. <laughs> I mean, to to put it mildly. And my mother was afraid that I was going to go live with my dad, as if that's how things worked. Although she told it to me because my dad had more money and I was shallow and would be beguiled by that and go live with him. And I was like, I literally don't even know this person. Why would I go live there? <laughs> you know. So she, she started in with that right away. 
Immediately. Yeah. Immediately. And I, I have to tell you, I don't think my dad was loaded or anything like that. Just middle class, you know, but we, we were poor. Yeah. I'd spent a lot of those early years, especially moving from trailer to trailer. I know what it's like to live without electricity and heat sometimes just because it's too expensive. You know, we bought all of our food at this place where it was like damaged food products. My family, my mom had a variety of jobs. I mean, she was always working. I come from the kind of rural, lower class background that is so common that is, thinks it's shameful to take advantage of any aspect of the social safety net. So while we could have qualified yeah. for ex- for sure for all kinds of assistance and had a better life, it was like too shameful to do that. So, you know, my mom had a variety of jobs, often retail, often working long hours, sometimes multiple jobs at a time. I have so many memories of sleeping in the car in the parking lot of my mom's workplace yeah. while she worked an overnighter. Uh, and, you know, when I was in third grade, finally she was able to, I think with some help from my grandmother, uh, go back to school and get a degree in accounting. But a few years later, she realized that she hated accounting. Um, so then she had a stint at a bank, which she also hated that. And then she eventually just settled into managing retail stores. But also at the same time, you know, so my mom's working all the time. I have a half brother as well who's four years younger than me. And by third grade, my mom felt like I was mature enough to be home alone with my brother. So from that point on, I was like the head babysitter, housekeeper. You know, I did all the cooking, the cleaning, the laundry, et cetera. She, I, I laugh about this now, um, but it felt very serious to me at the time. Very, very important. She taught me how to write out checks so I could do the grocery shopping alone. Oh my God. So she would drop me off and I would have a list and oh I would buy it because I did all the cooking. I knew what I needed. And then I would, you know, go up to the check, <laughs> go up to the checkout, get rung up, like write out my check. <laughs> and I can't even imagine what the cashiers thought at that point. Cause like to see like a 10 year old pull out a checkbook has got to be hilarious. But, you know, we lived in a small town, so they knew me. They knew that I was the kid who wrote out checks, you know? <laughs> Still, uh, yeah, no, I, my, this is so much information that my, my mind is blown. First of all, because I don't think I really figured out how to put together a grocery list and cook until I was maybe 27. So, um, it's incredible that you were doing this at such a young age. And I also can't imagine what the cashiers were thinking. Cause I'm picturing this like small for her age child, you know, with, <laughs> A checkbook. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, I will say, you know, my grandma is the one who taught me about making a list because I would always go grocery shopping with her. I had this little, like the little plastic box that you would put recipe cards in, like as a file. I know people don't have these anymore because you get all your recipes online, but it was like a thing that you're like your grandma, or your mom might have. But mine was for my coupons <laughs> that oh, yeah. I sorted alphabetically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so I'd also have all my coupons with me too, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, and I, I mean, I like, I actually really, I, to this day, I love grocery shopping and I'm really good at staying on a budget for that. Um, and it's all thanks to that. And I'm not saying that 10 year olds should do that, but, uh, it was of all of the responsibility I had at that point, that was the fun one, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, I also love cooking. So that was great too. Yeah, so many um, layers of life skills. Already, <laughs> just at this point. I know, I know. And, but so I guess what I'm saying is like, I didn't get to be a kid a lot. Yeah. Like I, if I wasn't doing housework, which that was always like the number one priority in our house, like I could not 
do anything else until after that. So then if all the housework was done and you know my homework was done, then I could go in my room and play very quietly. And I was obsessed with Barbies and I would write stories about them and make clothes and act things out and get my brother involved and you know, always like really imagination-based games. But my grandma's house was like my refuge because I was the first grandchild, I was the only girl, and I was sick. So I was spoiled by her. I mean, just like nonstop love and affection, Yeah, anything I ever wanted. There was a way to negotiate to it. Honestly, if I said, you know, grandma, I really want this Barbie, and she said no, which is highly unlikely, uh, I could go to my grandpa and he would be like, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, How much is it? And get his wallet out. And so like – at home, things were not fun, but at my grandma's house, they were like, I was like a princess. So of course, that's where I wanted to go all the time. I would spend a lot of summers um, up to a certain point at my grandma's house and I would help her. Like she, but then I knew how to type. So I would help her type out invoices and stuff. And we would take a break to watch soap operas and it was Amazing. so fun. Um, but her house felt safe to me. It was where I got to be a kid. It was where I got all the unconditional love and affection that children should get all the time. And she made me feel really special. And like, I definitely was drinking my own Kool-Aid when I was at my grandma's house. I was like, I'm a really special kid. Well, thank God you had those moments. I know. I know. I have to say, um, I feel like I'm going to tear up talking about this, but you know, my grandmother, she, she saved my life. She changed my life because she discovered that I had been being abused by one of my stepfathers and like really, really considerably, like physically and emotionally, um, psychologically. And, you know, it wasn't something that I could talk about. Um, and that, that was like, I, I've never seen this movie sliding doors, but people talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I've, I have seen almost no movies, but there's always this talk of this like sliding doors moment where if things had gone one way, your life would be completely different. And I think if, the one day I was taking a bubble bath at my grandma's house and she came in and was talking to me and she saw bruises on my body. Mm. If that hadn't happened and she hadn't taken control of the situation, I, I, we wouldn't be talking right now. I mean, I, I think about that. I've been thinking about that my entire life, actually. Yeah. Um, I, w children who are experiencing that kind of abuse every day, uh, they don't get to have good lives, you know, and they don't get to go very far. They don't get to go away to New York City to go to college. And they don't get to travel all around the world. And I was thinking of a story that I hadn't told you, but that <laughs> relates to this. So we'll talk about this more later, but I had my mom's fourth husband was incredibly abusive to me. I mean, just in incredibly. And my grandmother found out and basically, you know, drew the line in the sand, gave my mom an ultimatum that they had to split up, which my mom was not happy about. But yeah. they did. And he kept – she kept having him over to our new apartment all the time. And I told my grandma. And then it had, like, escalated. And then my mom hated me, whatever. Something happened where she finally was like, listen, we can't get back together. It's done. And he – this is a violent person. You know, this is a person who abuses children. Yeah. He, I'm about to tell you a story of just, like, the the most – poorly executed criminal behavior that I've ever heard of. Um, he kidnapped his own uncle and took him down to this dam on the river and made him take off all his clothes and tied him to a tree. And then he went to a payphone and he called my mom and said that he was going to kill his uncle if she didn't agree to get back together. And wow. my, my mom was like, so wait, you're going to kill your uncle. <laughs> like you didn't, you didn't kidnap my uncle. Right. Um, all right. Uh, can you just tell me where you are so I can come and meet you? And he told her, and my mom called the police, and they arrested him. Wow. And 
in a small town where I grew up, this was a massive, massive scandal. So my mom got sent off to California for a few months with my brother to stay with our relatives there. And I lived with my grandma and it was great, (laughs) you know? Oh my God. This is so much more dramatic than I had even imagined. Well, it's so much more dramatic than it needed to be. Um, At some point, and I'll I'll probably say this again, you're going to have to write a book about all of this because (laughs) it's so so layered and so nail-biting, but I don't... (laughs) I don't want to move on too quickly from what you endured as a kid, which I want to try to like recap for myself and, you know, just for our listeners. So you, um, your parents split up when you were young, you don't remember them together largely because you were diagnosed with cancer when you were a toddler, right? Allegedly that is why, but I think that they were just like too young. Well, yes, no, I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like they probably didn't have the coping skills to get through a, you know, a blissful normal marriage, let alone, um, you know, one that is, you know, where a child is, is seriously ill. So, um, just for chronology, like you were, you were in the hospital a lot from like the age of two till like four or five. Is that kind of how long you were sick? Yeah. Yeah. So, You know, I think we think of having cancer as being really linear, like, and sometimes it can be like, you know, you get the treatment, you go into remission, and then like time passes where then you're better, right? Because I was so young and because like cancer treatment technology was so different in the 80s than it is now, especially with children, um, they were kind of just throwing everything they could at me. And so I was very, very sick. I actually was way sicker from the treatment, which I'm sure is something you can understand. Way, way sicker from the treatment than the actual (laughs) illness, right? And uh, it opened me up to a lot of other illnesses along the way. And so I would generally, I mean, this was a different time when like the way our healthcare system works was completely different. So I would live at the hospital when I was undergoing treatment, which would be for a few months because I was getting radiation, I was getting chemo, there's tons of testing. I was very vulnerable to infection. So I kind of couldn't go anywhere. Then I'd go home for a little bit. I ended up getting really sick, coming back the next week and staying there again. Mm -hmm. And when we finally reached a point where it was like, okay, we think you're in remission, there was still a lot of concern because of the kind of cancer that I had that it would come back at a moment's notice. So I still was going back to the hospital every few months, you know, spending a week there and getting a ton of testing done again. Yeah. And gradually that time in between stretched out. And by elementary school, it was just every few months, like maybe every six months and it became every year. Um, but it, it's a lot of time spent in the hospital for sure. Yeah. So you you were in and out of, out of the hospital and your father, I'm assuming, moved, moved away, far away um, yes. when your parents were divorced. And your mom, before the age of seven, somehow managed to get married three or four times out of seven. Yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, a busy time, busy time. Yeah, no, she, I mean, she clearly had a certain magnetism as well, um, <laughs> you know, maybe inherited from her mother. But it it sounds like the people that she brought into your life were um, were treacherous, you know, and I, I just can't imagine being in and out of the hospital and then in and out of a home where these different men are rotating through and are abusive. 
And then on the flip side, having these periodic escapes to your grandmother's place where at least you got a better sense of how you should be treated. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was, uh, by the time the abuse had really gotten really, really bad, um, it was, I want to say kindergarten. And, uh, by that point, you know, I was spending more time at home than in the hospital, like for sure. Finally, we had like reached that tipping point where like I was at home and, you know, I went to school like all the other kids. You know, I live in the country now, but growing up in the country, I was like, I never want to go back there again because there's something that seems fundamentally unsafe about living in the country. I can't explain it, but I like, I know people say cities are dangerous, but I don't feel that way. I feel like there's safety in numbers and uh, that particular stepfather, the really abusive one, we lived literally out in the middle of nowhere on a dirt road. It was really hard to reach us. There was no one anywhere near us. And so it felt like being trapped in this like, I don't don't know, just being trapped, I guess. And I guess you were home alone with him quite a bit or was your mother, was she aware of what was going on? I was home alone with him a lot. My mom was working second shift often, which meant, I don't know, like going to work around when I would get home from school and being there until long after I was in bed. And I, I mean, I have, this is one of those questions that if I think about too much, it makes me crazy. I have to believe to continue my life that my mom didn't know, but I also look back and I'm like, how could she have not known? Because I was having a lot of emotional problems. I was having physical issues. Um, I, you know, was covered with bruises. Um, I remember being very frightened all the time. And so I, I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, when I think about how I don't talk to my mom anymore, it's that's one of the reasons why I just don't think I can. Yeah. You know? It's cumulative. Yeah. Yeah. You've talked about her a bit on the pod and yeah, and, and you're not speaking now. But, you know, I I've gleaned some things about her. You know, what I hear in all of it is a kind of deep pessimism. And that she was constantly trying to lower your expectations. And, you know, what do you think her, her motives were? Like, how did she, how did she become this way? Do you think? Honestly, I think she was just really disappointed by her life. I never, and and to be fair, I never got an impression about what, of what she wanted her life to be, what she had lost, mm-hmm. but she had me when she was 19. She never got to go out and sow her wild oats. She resented me, saw me as a burden, would frequently remind me that it was my fault that her life was so terrible and unfair. She's she, The way she saw it, she was being forced to constantly find a father for me, and that ruined her chances for really finding true love. Although I will tell you that she's also told me many times over the years that that stepfather that she had to divorce because he was abusing me was the one she had loved the most. Wow. She was and is a person who assumes the worst about everyone. Everyone is lying to her. Everyone is materialistic. Um, there's, there's so much, so much going on there that I can't even begin to unpack it. Definitely have talked about it with my therapist extensively, how someone could be so dark. In late elementary school, I learned a word that became really important for me when I was trying to describe my mom to myself. And that was the word martyr because my mom was the ultimate martyr. Mm. That was her claim to fame that everything she did, Mm -hmm. she hated but she did it because of everyone else around her. And that was for me, I was like, okay, note to self, life goal, number one life goal, don't martyr yourself because it makes you a miserable person. That mindset 
has helped me in certain jobs I've been in where I'm like, you know, I kind of feel like I'm being my mom here <laughs> where I am making myself miserable and and for what? At least my mom could say she was making herself miserable for what? Me, my brother, her mother, I have no idea. But like I don't really need to help my corporation. Like I don't need to sacrifice for them. They're going to be fine without me, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's, uh, again, amazing that you were able to sort of unpack that and make that a model for what you didn't want to be because what can so easily happen is to inherit a martyr complex, right? Yeah, and it's the worst. And I see friends who do that to themselves. Well, I wanted to talk about how you sort of coped with your illness as a, as a child, because it was such an unusual situation, you know, to be in where you're isolated from other kids. Um, you're in the hospital for a long time. And I'm curious about how you pass the time in your solitude. (laughs) Um, you know, I mean, I hung out with a lot of adults. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I actually, I mean, that is like when my love of reading began. I mean, I still love reading. It's one of life's simplest pleasures. And along with that re- writing and drawing, my grandma would buy me as many books as I wanted anytime. She'd give me stacks and stacks of legal pads to draw and write on. And I, j- I found refuge in my own imagination. You know, like that... That is, I th- I feel like it was really in a weird way. Not that children should have to go through any of this, but it it made me smarter. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. I really got to work out my brain all the time. Now, did that set me back socially? Of course. I remember with the, when I first started going to school, I was like, "This is this sucks. I hate it. I would like to drop out of school now." <laughs> um, I got over that and learned to love school. But I remember the first couple years of school being like, "This is such a drag." And how many more years of this do I have to do because it's terrible? Was it because you had to be around kids? I do remember as a small child not loving the company of other children, honestly. <laughs> or was it the schoolwork? Like, was it too was it too easy for you, or was it all of the above? It was all of the above. But you know, had I had I been aware of existential philosophy at that point, I probably would have <laughs> I would have gone the start route and said, you know, hell is other people, because <laughs> that's just like how I felt. Like, if it had just been me at school, and yeah, the work still would have been boring, it probably would have still been fine. <laughs> but like, yeah. I understand that children need to be around other children, and it is very important for their social development, um, and it sets them up for success later, but I was just like, this is horrible. These children are terrible, you know? (laughs) They're unpredictable, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Well, you spent your time in the company of adults, and, you know, I I would imagine that you were treated kindly by them in the hospital, I hope. And, you know, you were, you know, there working on what I'm picturing, like, math workbooks at the age of five. Like, maybe you already knew how to read. Like, tell me a little bit more about your your sort of development during that time when you were you were alone my early childhood is such a weird hodgepodge of like both good and bad things and uh somewhere along the line someone made the decision that i seemed to be smarter than average and so like investment was put into that like you have to remember this is like a pre cd era uh 
I was given a record player with a whole series of books about animals with coordinating records. And that's how I learned how to read. And so I would listen to these records and look at these books over and over and over again. I also am obsessed with animals, even as an adult. And I'm sure that relates to it. Around second grade, I started reading chapter books. I think I probably could have before them, but I just didn't know that I was allowed to. And I mean, these were like the very basic chapter books, like Amelia Bedelia and whatnot. But like, that was when I was like, oh my God, reading is my number one favorite thing. And I would read the same book. I would finish it and just open it up and start it over again, over and over and over again. And that was just like how, I don't know, how I passed the time. And I just, I I think it developed my brain for sure, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about what you said earlier about being in the car while your mother was working and, you know, how how did you pass the time there? How did you occupy yourself? Because that sounds very lonely. It sounds dangerous to a certain extent. (laughs) So wild, right? I mean, that would never happen now, right? Like that would never happen. I would be in foster care. So my really abusive stepfather, uh, he would do this thing um, because he was like very, very convinced that I had just been born a bad kid. Uh, that me having cancer was proof that I was a bad kid. And so the best thing that they could do was discipline this badness out of me. Um, some, co- I mean, this guy obviously had major mental health issues. Remember, he kidnapped his yeah. own uncle. So he would pick me up from school, and which I would say, you know, I'd probably get home around three, and I would have to go stand in the corner until it was time to go to bed. So what, five hours maybe? And I was only allowed to use the bathroom one time, and I would eat my my – dinner standing in the corner. And that is like, I feel like what they do to inmates when they put them in solitary confinement. And I had to use my imagination to survive that. And I got really good at building these worlds in my head. On times when I didn't get to have dinner, I would imagine eating my dinner and what that was like. That set me up for like, I'm just not a person who gets bored. I'm only bored if I'm around boring people (laughs) who I have to give my attention to, uh, but I would much rather take my attention away from them and just go into my own space and like think about stuff I've read or ideas I've had or remember things. I used to love to, as I was standing in that corner, reconstruct experiences I'd already had um, that I could remember really well. And uh, I remember at that point, I was really obsessed with watching The Love Boat at my grandma's house. And I was very into this idea of going on big boat cruises. And so sometimes I would just stand there and make up stories in my head about me and my grandma going on a cruise. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, So, yeah, I mean, I think that is how I could hang out in a car all night and be cool. That's in- incredible. It's incredibly, I don't know how to even describe it. Like it's, it's terrible that you had to experience that. And yet you developed this incredible muscle of imagination through all of that. I think it explains a lot about how you're able to retain and build all of this information that you put together in the podcast and all of these things that you do, you know, just because you have, I don't know, like a, a very like, robust architecture in your head, you know? Yeah. I have a complex filing system in there for sure. I mean, and I, I love thinking. I just love thinking about things. So what, what other things I feel like, um, I know you're good at math 
And I feel mm-hmm. like I have this vague memory at one of our meetings that you mentioned being a champion of the state spelling bee. Am I right? Yeah. I, um, I mean, I am the kid who always had straight A's yeah. in school. One time in eighth grade, in one marking period in my science class, I got an 89, which was technically mm. a B. And I was grounded for months over that. But lest you think that I was under some pressure to succeed, I was barely trying at school yeah. ever. And just doing fine. You know, like I didn't have like strong study skills or organization or anything. I could just hear someone talk about something or read something or write down what the person said and then just remember it. Um, And so like it's not like school didn't become really interesting to me until high school for sure when I could like explore things a lot more. I'm a really, really fast reader. I, I think it's just from practice. I can usually if I fly – Coast to coast, I can read three or four books cover to cover in that time period. I I love reading. I hung out so much at the town library and elementary school that they asked me if I wanted to become a volunteer. And so I would volunteer at the library, just hanging out, helping people find things. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so I obviously love yeah. libraries. I mean, I am like a really nerdy person and always have been. And I like going back to the idea of people like in fashion thinking I'm like, re- like, you know, I have legendary taste. I'm like, I'm actually just like such a nerd, you know? I am curious at this point, if there's anything in your childhood that would suggest a path towards fashion and towards buying. I mean, I would say two things. One, I always had my own unique style because I was smaller than all the other kids. And my grandmother was very indulgent of me trying new things. So like I would wear my grandfather's shirts to school as a dress. And I, you know, I was always mixing up color and wearing weird stuff together. My grandma was very, very supportive of that. Um, But also Mm -hmm. I was telling you how one of my favorite things to do would be go to my grandma's house which was always heavily air conditioned. So in summer, it was like a paradise. You had to wrap yourself up in an afghan and you know, go into her bedroom where, where my boy cousins were not allowed to go because they were always, always getting into something. Go in there, close the door, put on the television, and get out my legal pad, and I would draw these families of girls over and over again in different outfits Mm -hmm. as they moved through different parts of their lives. And I had backstories for all of them, just pages and pages and pages, just a legal pad and a Bic pen for like hours. And that was like my happy place. I mean, everybody in my family was always open to babysitting me or letting me stay at their house because you would never like, as the quote was always like, you'd never know she's there. (laughs) I think that's so, um, that's so interesting because I also liked to do that. It sounds so specific, but I really enjoyed drawing large families of girls and I would organize them in height order. Mm-hmm, always. That's important. Think yeah. hard about their names, their middle names, um, and also their outfits. Generally, I was really interested in like some nondescript past time period. I don't think I was particularly aware of like when in the 19th century these, this family <laughs> lived. But, you know, there was always a lot of pinafores and puppy sleeves and... I'm I'm really curious about the fact that we both did this. And do you think it was influenced at all by what you were reading? Because I, I feel like in literature for girls from like Little Women to the Babysitter's Club, there's always, the stories are always built around 
a family or a group of friends. And each girl is like a different archetype. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think about like there are BuzzFeed quizzes that are like, which member of the babysitters club are you? You know, I've actually been going through this weird phase. I haven't been doing as much right now, but last summer when like the pandemic was just like brutal, like I was just filled with so much despair. I started reading all these young adult books of my youth Again, so like all the Judy mm-hmm. Bloom, um, a mm-hmm. little bit of Babysitter's Club, a lot of other writers that – like I remember there was this series about a, a girl named Taffy Sinclair, and I uncovered a bunch of those at the thrift store, and I was delighted to read them all. And I realized how two-dimensional all of these characters <laughs> are. And so you have to be like, well, yeah. if we're talking about the Babysitter's Club, like I guess I'm 50% Claudia and 50% Christy. But then you're like, you know, you know what I mean? Like just the fact. <laughs> That they are yes. so like not nuanced and it is kind of the same archetypes over and over again. Like there's the creative yeah. one who dresses yeah. cool but doesn't get good grades. There's the smart one but who like no one likes because they're a loud mouth. You know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I did – similarly, I read all of Little House on the Prairie again. And <gasps> I read Little Women or tried to, to read Little Women and actually couldn't get very far. Um, but I was sort of arrested by this one passage where each of the sisters gets like a little leather-bound book for Christmas. And they mm-hmm. each get one that's a different color, you know, which is suggested that it like corresponds with their personality. Like I think Joe's is red and Amy's is dove gray. And um, it really made me think, you know, tying to kind of like back to fashion buying, it's sort of like these female characters always had accoutrement, right. That went with their personalities. And I feel like this is just something that like girls and women, you know, have been conditioned to think of, you know, it's like, here's, here's who I am. This is my persona. And this, these are the things that help signify that. And it sounds like you were just sort of developing those kind of stories, like, you know, in a way when you were a kid that I, I feel like there has to be some dotted line to how you were thinking as a buyer. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I, I mean, I think about, we've all absorbed all those archetypes, right? Like into our own thinking. And I remember like, for example, the babysitter's club, how Christy, the president of the club is like, you know, she gets good grades and she's smart, but she's loud and that's bossy and people don't like that. Mm -hmm. And like, it kind of stigmatizes like, oh, we shouldn't be bossy. And I would always be like, you know, I know I'm the smart kid at school. I have to be as quiet and not bossy as possible. Like I, I can't, I can't give in to Christie's greatest faults, you know. Uh, and you know what yeah. I mean. And uh, I remember in third grade there was this teacher, Mrs. Billet, who everyone hated because um, she was mean. I had her for second grade; she made me cry all the time. But she apparently, despite me being in terror, being in her class, she thought I was like this genius child and always wanted to like give me opportunities and stuff. She even asked me one time if I wanted to go miniature golfing with her, um, which was like, I realized now was her trying to maybe being like, I think things might be bad at home. What if we do some miniature golf? But at the time I was like, this is really weird. Like I can't start hanging out with Mrs. Billet. But she, uh, one time in the cafeteria came over and was like, listen, I hear, I hear you're here at a table full of girls. And the only voice I hear from across the room is yours. You need to work on that. And it was like, (gasps) I'm a loud person. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't want to be a loud person. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, it's, it's so um, crazy to think of that, 
like you can be smart, but you can't take up a lot of space. Like you, yeah. you want to be bossy yeah. and just, um, yeah, it's, it's eye opening to go back and read, read those books. Oh my gosh, them. for sure. Another one that I definitely read every book in the series, even though most of them were boring was Sweet Valley High. Mm, yeah. And it also upheld that paradigm that either you were beautiful and popular or smart and uncool. <laughs> like yeah. You couldn't be both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I read a little bit of those. They were really vapid, but hard. To they were so dry, yeah. but they had all of them at the town library. So I was like, I guess, right. I guess I'm like, going to read all these. Chewed through them like they were. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't learn very much. <laughs> so we've talked a bit about your childhood and I'm, I'm kind of interested about, you know, you heading into high school um, because I know that you went to a private high school on scholarship, right? Mm-hmm, you know, you yeah. mentioned that elementary school was super easy. You know, you didn't really have to work that hard. Um, what was it like to go to this new school? And, you know, did it become harder, you know, the the work? And was it harder socially because it was, you know, sort of this this top school or, you know, sort of a higher echelon of education? Like, what, what was all of that like? I mean, it was definitely a mixed bag. I will say, um, socially, it was a nightmare. Um, it was a really small school, and I was weird and poor, and I didn't fit in. Uh, all the boys in my class spent their lunch periods or their free periods listening to Rush Limbaugh. Oh, my goodness together. Yeah. So just to give you an idea of like what this was like, um, they always would wear Tevas with socks to get around the dress code because you weren't allowed to wear sandals. Um, Just that kind of guy. And you had a, we had a lot of free periods where you could do whatever you want. So some people might go play guitar or do their homework or, you know, whatever. Right. And I would go hang out in the cafeteria with the cafeteria ladies and they would give me coffee. (laughs) So I would just sit there and read and do my schoolwork and drink coffee with the ladies there. Um, And I loved that actually. Like, you know, I think knowing that my grandma Doris worked in a cafeteria forever, like felt, I was like, these are safe people to be around. Um, But on the other hand, one of the greatest things about this school was that it was very book focused, not textbook focused, but like actually reading books. And so in that regard, it was, I mean, it was like a perfect fit for me, right? Like if I just, if I could for the rest of my life, just read books and write about it, that would be like my happy place. And we, we got outside of the the mainstays of like regular high school. Like, yeah, we still had to read like great expectations and things like that, but I read Sophie's Choice, yeah, you yeah. know, for a class. Like we – the books that you weren't allowed to read in public school, we got to read there. And it was really reading and writing focused. You know, also like, you know, getting people ready for college, obviously, which was good, <laughs> you know. Um, it wasn't like recite, take a test, you know, like memorize, recite, take a test, now do the next thing, forget everything you learned before. But instead it was like read these books see them through this prism. I mean, it was like a comparative literature kind of situation, I would say. Um, And that I loved because I, you know, regular school wasn't like that. It was boring. I'm assuming at the time, based on what you mentioned when you were talking with Meg um, in episode 72, which was about creativity and capitalism, you described your high school guidance counselor steering you towards science and math, which I assume you were also good at in addition to mm-hmm. all of the like language arts and the you know more reading and research based classes and you know i I actually really found this hard to comprehend and hear because 
I think of you as an artist, first and foremost. You know, I, <laughs> when I think of you, I think of the photographs that you create um, for the website. I, I just, I don't see you, although I know you're good at math, as someone heading into a math and science-based career. So what were they specifically pushing you towards? I, th- I think just, you know, making a living. <laughs> Like getting down to brass tacks. Like I noticed, okay, so there were a couple other scholarship kids at my school and I felt like we were getting the same advice, if you want my honest opinion. And uh, I understand, I think that that was, you know, done with the best intentions. But that was when I became aware, I think, that like there is a class divide in terms of who gets to think of creative careers and who does not. Um, And, you know, like, I always thought that I would probably just end up becoming a scientist or something, that it would be fine. Mm-hmm. It would be fine living. Even I at that point was like, I have to be able to like pay my bills, you know? And high school was hard for me because uh, I was periodically homeless. My mom would throw me out of the house all the time because I was moody. That was that was the adjective. And so I would spend months moving from friend to friend's house. Um, it was It was hard. And I never once thought about dropping out of school. I will tell you that because I was like, I have to, the only way I'm getting out of here is by going to college. Like the, there's no, I'm going to be stuck here forever, yeah. you know? And uh, my teachers were just this incredible support network for me. Um, I look back now and I'm like, whoa, some of my teachers were like really cool. Uh, my Spanish teacher called me one day and said, hey, uh, can you come and see me at the end of the school day? And she had a whole box of books that she'd bought me about like punk and art and like just all kinds of crazy stuff I'd never been exposed to. Um, And she was like, this is a prize because you had the best score on the Spanish test. But like, we know that's just like not a thing. (laughs) Um, And, you know, my teachers, they like paid my college application fees. I had teachers who would drive me to my part-time job because they knew I didn't have any other means of transportation. Yeah. And I, I mean, I have friends now who are teachers and they're amazing people. And I, I think back to how just so many kids that I went to school with throughout school who didn't think of teachers as people, mm-hmm. just as like these taskmasters, these babysitters, these unfair individuals. And I'm just like, man, I, I have so much appreciation for the teachers of the world. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be where I am without my teachers. <laughs> Seriously. No, I'm picturing them like in the the staff room. Smoking cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, talking about how concerned they were about you and kind of creating a little bit of a net, which I think you perceived that they were looking out for you. But anyway, I just I just like to think that they were had a special focus on you given what you were going through. I think so too. I see that now as an adult. You know, I see friends of mine who would be those teachers doing that thing. And I can see where that came from. And it it is like, it it means so much to me. And I'm assuming they helped you get off to college, which was NYU, right? Yes. Yes. I think it's also important to mention that I applied to NYU without ever actually setting foot in New York City ever in my whole life. Um, I had just heard it was cool. (laughs) I I don't know what to say. I just was like, what's the most opposite place I could go? That's where I'm going to go. And uh, I just need to get away from here. You know, like everybody else I grew up with stayed around. Uh, They're still around. And 
I, I just, I was like, I don't fit in here now. I'm not going to fit in here 10 years from now. So um, I also didn't want to go to school anywhere that anyone from high school had gone because I just didn't want to deal with it. I wanted to like start over. Hello, everyone. It's Meg, content producer of World. I am dropping in to tease all of the hot content coming out of the blog this week. It's a particularly special week in the Close Source universe as we round out Labor Month, also known as May, because Amanda, Carrie, myself, and Haley have all written essays about our personal and professional experiences in honor of Labor Month. First up, we have Amanda's takedown of the PA unemployment system, a perplexing and antiquated government service that has proven woefully unprepared for the tidal wave of claims brought on by the pandemic. People are in dire need of assistance still, as this pandemic is not over, y'all, and we are having to become exceptionally resourceful when requests for UC benefits remain unfulfilled. This is an essay to get fired up about for sure. Next, we have Carrie, who tells the delightfully horrifying tale of a close friend's remote performance review gone awry. Carrie calls attention to the lack of authentic and genuine mentorship offered in some workplaces these days, and identifies performance reviews for what they have been reduced to, a literal performance. Carrie's essay asks the important and thought-provoking questions like, what is the purpose of a performance review? How do we truly evaluate fit in the workplace? And what is the best way to communicate about work at work? Check out the blog this week to find out more, and feel free to share your work evaluation horror stories with us. See if you can top this one. It's a real TKO for sure. After Carrie's essay, we have mine, which deals with my many experiences with burnout. We've all tossed that word around, and I bet most of us have felt it from time to time. In this piece, I choose to call myself out for willingly over-sacrificing at work in the past and contributing to my own exhaustion by failing to set up boundaries. It took me way too long to realize that work is never going to be my family, and that is okay. Learn more about how I discovered the word no at work this week at CloseForce.World. And finally, we have Haley, broaching the controversial subject of paying one's dues as a young person in the industry. Haley calls out employers for taking advantage of young upstarts with unpaid internships, long work hours, and little to no respect. All work deserves dignity and fair compensation for services rendered, period. Age should not be a factor in this. Right on, Haley. Check out her fiery manifesto coming soon to the blog. I also want to remind everyone that the deadline for submissions for the blog for Body and Beauty Month, a.k.a. July, amazing that we're scheduling for that already, right, is Saturday, June 19th. It will definitely be here before you know it, and we want to feature all of your amazing bodies and selves on our platform. If you have an idea but need a brainstorm, feel free to email me, meg, at closesource.world, that's M-E-G, or send in your ready-made pieces to submissions at closesource.world. I can't wait to see your emails. Literally, I get so excited to check my inbox every day. Well, that's it for now. I hope you have enjoyed this fireside chat. In truth, there is no fire where I am, but it definitely feels hot as Hades here while I'm recording this message. Take care, dear listeners, and we will talk soon. Bye. Let's skip ahead because I know you ended up in Chicago next, and I was wondering how you got there. I think a lot of people go through this when you reach a point where you're like, I don't, I don't know what I want to do next. I literally have no ideas. I think that is what being a young adult is. You know, you you know you're gonna you have the path laid out ahead of you for so long. You're gonna go to school, then you're gonna go to college, and then question mark. And I was at yeah. the question mark moment. Um, I didn't know what to do. 
And my boyfriend, Brad, was awarded a fellowship in neuroscience at Northwestern, and he moved there. And I was like, I'm not moving to Chicago. I've never even been there. It's not even near an ocean. It's the Midwest, like gross. Um, and so I I moved home for a little bit. My stepfather of, at that time, a different stepfather, was he was in the end stages of AIDS, yeah. and my mom needed my help taking care of him. Um, so that's what I threw myself into. I worked third shift at a diner. And mm. I took care of my stepfather. And when he passed mm. away uh, in our house, um, it was it – was I mean, it's it's one of those things I will never not think about. And uh, my mom lost her shit. She said everything she wanted to say to me my whole life about how much she hated me. It was really brutal. Um, people deal with grief in different ways, obviously. My grandmother showed up immediately with a ticket to Chicago mm. for me, and I left. I took two suitcases. And once again, moved to a place I'd never been before. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, and I have this memory of, like, you know, getting off the plane. Brad was there. We got on the subway. We took the subway to the bus. And then we had to take this, like, 45-minute bus ride to the apartment. And just looking out the window, it was the dead of winter in Chicago. It was just gloomy and snowy. And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing here? But actually, I really loved Chicago. Um, I lived there for several years. It, Chicago is so amazing, actually. Uh, one of my favorite places I've lived, wow. for sure. So you really, I mean, you launching into that part of your life um, sounds absolutely traumatic um, in terms of <laughs> dealing with tragic hardship of of losing your stepfather and then your mother taking it out on you in a way that sounds like it's just a a pattern. You picked up the pieces in Chicago and what did you do there? You know, I get there, I have no plan. I have a couple hundred dollars in my checking account. I I'm pretty sure I remember it being $344 cuz I was like wow trying to figure out what I was going to do with $344. And one of our roommates was like, you know, my friend is a nanny and she like makes a lot of money. She is like, goes through a really fancy agency. I'm going to set you guys up. And she came over and we talked about it. And then like a, a couple days later, I had a nanny job. Um, wow. So I did that for a while. Um, and I started taking these like weird like you, I don't know if this kind of thing exists anymore, but you could go to like a holiday inn for two days and take these like intensive software training classes for a couple hundred bucks. And mm -hmm. I learned all of this different software. I learned the, you know, the Microsoft Office Suite and I learned basic graphic design stuff and some other things. And I actually then got a job working for a nonprofit doing all of that. And since it was a nonprofit, I had like 17 different jobs there um, doing all kinds of things. And it was because I'd taken all those classes and they paid for me to go to a few more. So I oh. like learned computer things, <laughs> which I definitely had not learned in school. And uh, so that's what I was doing until I left Chicago. So Brad is not Dylan's dad, right? No, no. Um, you know, we uh, broke up about a year, a year and a half into me living in Chicago. And it was basically just like, I couldn't see us being married. And I wasn't ready to get married, but we'd been together for so many years at this point that that was probably the expectation. And he would tell people that I actually broke up because I wanted with him because I wanted to pursue my career as a hipster. Uh, um, and that, yeah, that's probably true. Like, <laughs> you know, I wanted to do different things. I yeah. uh, was always hanging out with his friends who were all like scientists and they were all great and funny and smart and delightful to hang out with. But like, I wanted to go to shows and I wanted to hang out with 
you know, dudes who wore really tight jeans and stuff, you know? And so I moved to Wicker Park, which basically was like moving to another country from the part of Chicago we lived in. So we, we didn't run into each other. Uh, I, you know, lived that life. Wicker Park was like the hub of hipsterism of that era. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I fell into it pretty fast and I loved it. I would go to work. I would come home. I would change clothes. I would get my bike. I would ride over to the coffee shop where I would sit for an hour or two, like drawing or writing and drinking coffee, eat a salad or something there. Then I would get back on my bike and bike to a bar and have like two drinks and then go home. And I would just do that every single night so I could like see people and meet people because I had no friends then. Like I was like starting over. Oh my goodness. Wow. So you you didn't move there because you're like, oh, I had these friends from work or built-in social life. Like you you had to create that from scratch. Yeah. I just knew that it was cool. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So I'm guessing that you met Dylan's dad in that in that process. I did. And I was thinking about that in preparation for this episode. And, you know, I was seeing this guy. I'm just going to say his name because he's never going to listen to this. His name was Andy. And that's also could be like any white dude ever, right? Yeah, his sure. name was Andy. And he was very, very handsome. He looked just like Beck. Like he was so cute and snappy dresser and wore a lot of like vintage suits and stuff. Um, and we were hanging out and like he was really into me. But I just – it wasn't all there for me. But all my friends were like, oh, my God, he's so cute. Like what is your problem? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. It's like – intellectually it's just not there and he always wants to talk about like weird esoteric stuff that I just don't care about and one night he was like hey um do you mind if I invite my friend to come out with us he got out of a relationship a few months ago and he's just been like locked in his apartment painting this whole time and I just worry about him and to myself silently I thought I was like oh god another one who's gonna like want to talk about weird spiritual shit all (laughs) night great but I was like sure that's great we'll get my roommate to Alyssa to come with us and then like be like maybe they'll like each other you know so we're hanging out in the kitchen and my buzzer rings and I go to open the door and like it's just cinematic moment I Mm -hmm. never believed in love at first sight uh I guess I do now because like when I opened the door, it, like, I can't explain it, but just something about him made me, like, lose my mind. Wow. Like, just, just like, I, I couldn't even, like, talk. And he was, like, really weird, too. And it was this instant moment between us. Um, so the four of us go out. Um, Alyssa is really trying to put the moves on this guy. His name's Ryan, by the way. And, <laughs> and like, it's just not, like, he's not interested. He just wants to talk to me. Yeah. And that Andy got super wasted, like, falling down drunk. And so I gave him my apartment key to go home and let himself in. And then Alyssa was like, well, I'm going home too. I'm tired. And I was like, promise that you will let me in when I come home. Mm-hmm. And she's like, of course. But she was actually angry ah. because I was staying there with Ryan. Right. So – we are there for another hour. Listen, I don't know what happened. One thing led to another. We're just like making out in the bar. <laughs> These things happen, right? Sure. I mean, they don't happen to me anymore, but they definitely happened back then. And I'm like, I got to go home. I got to go home. And he's like, okay. And he like walks me home and we're like making out the whole time. And then no one will let me in the apartment. I just buzz and buzz and buzz. And he's like, okay, well, why don't you come back to my house and you can call and your other roommate, Nate, can come and let you in. And I was like, okay, would you really do that? And he's like, yeah, I'll bring you back right away. But like, that's totally not what happened. We went to his house, mm-hmm. ended up spending the night. It was very romantic, very exciting. Um, and then, yeah, like that was that, that was, that was Dylan's father. And it was a very, very intense relationship. Um, overwhelming, uh, 
very, very electric. Uh, we broke up numerous times and couldn't stay apart for more than like 24 hours. It was so intense. How long were you guys together? A year and a half. And it was wow. a really intense year and a half of very hot, very high highs and very low lows. So when you um, found out that you were pregnant, you were 24, right? I remember you were describing this to Brandy mm-hmm. um, yeah. in one of the episodes from No Flight Back Vintage. And, you know, you talked about being, feeling really alone among your friends because no one else was having kids at this age, you know, at 24. And, you know, this relationship sounds so intense, but you guys, um, you know, were on and off and not married yet. So how, how did you feel confident about having the baby? I mean, I think you're probably noticing a pattern of me being thrown into really wild circumstances and just rolling with it. Um, That's like the short answer. You know, actually, when I found that I was pregnant, I was 23. And uh, Ryan, you know, was not as woo-woo as his friend Andy that I've been dating, but he still had a lot of woo-woo beliefs. And one of them was that 23 was this magical number. And he was like, when you turn 23, like crazy things are going to happen to you that are going to set the rest of your life in motion. And he wrote me this long letter on my 23rd birthday about how like all this amazing stuff was going to happen to me and we were going to be in it together. He was going to be a big part of it. And, um, I I was like, Oh my God, he's such a hippie, but, uh, crazy shit happened when I was 23. (laughs) The week after my 23rd birthday, I had a massive drug overdose. I was in the hospital in intensive care for a week. Um, I thought, okay, that's that's the thing that's going to happen when I'm 23 and like we're going to be done with it, right? And then like, yeah. you know, 6 months later, I was pregnant and that was pretty wild because I had never wanted to have children, had never even thought about it, um had been told my whole life that I wasn't going to have children, that I was incapable of it, so like it wasn't even something that I thought about. Um and so I was like, I'm just going to go with this. I'm going to do it. Like this is something mm-hmm. I never thought could happen and I'm really attached to the idea and like I am madly in love with this magical person who is magically in love with me. Like, why wouldn't we do this? Mm-hmm. Um, all my friends yeah. thought it was the worst idea ever. I mean, I've literally, literally, people were like campaigning for me to get an abortion in every possible way. And I was like, no, I mean, I have to do this. You know, like, it's my choice. You know, like, this is this is my yeah. choice. I believe in a woman's right to choose. I'm choosing this. And the plan was we we're going to build this life together. Um, it was hard. Ryan was getting really heavily into some really serious drugs. And uh, mm-hmm. it had been in the periphery of our friend group for quite a while. But like all of a sudden that year, some like new players emerged in our social circle who were like the kinds of people who are just like ruining their lives every day with drugs. And you, it's like painful to watch it and you don't know what to do, but you care about these people. And that's, that's where we were. And he was getting yeah. sucked into it. He died of a drug overdose. I still can't believe it. His boss called me and said, have you have you heard from Ryan? And I'm like, I haven't actually. He left me some voicemails last mm-hmm. night, but I didn't call him. I was mad at him. And mm-hmm. she's like, well, he's never not shown up for work ever, and I feel very concerned. And I was like, okay, well, I don't, I don't know what to do because I was visiting my mom in Pennsylvania, so I wasn't even in Chicago the night this happened. And I said, you know – we could try to get in touch with his landlord and she could go knock on the door or something. And she's like, you know what? I'm going to go over there. She's like, I know where his apartment is. And she mm-hmm. went over, she got there. He wasn't answering the door. She could see his feet sticking out from his desk. And she called mm-hmm. the landlord who came down. They unlocked the door and he was, he was gone. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's funny how something can happen 
so long ago and still hurt every day, you know? Um, I think we think that when things like that happen to us that we'll never feel happy again or that we will after a certain period of time and then we won't feel sad anymore. And that's just not how it works, you know? You can still be happy and still be sad. No, of course not. There was so much going on, obviously, then, and so much promise of what could yeah, be. It was, and <laughs> yeah, it's it's something you can't. I don't think ever ever put to bed. You can't. You can't. And for his family, it was devastating. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are ashamed of that kind of death. Like his family could not bear the shame that happening to him, you know? And as a result, you know, they needed to find someone to blame. And that person was me. Um, And secondarily, that person was Dylan. So they've had no participation in Dylan's life at all. And they've tried to cut back into Dylan's life in the past few years. And It reminds me too much of my father reemerging in my life around that age. And it was so painful and confusing for me that I just don't want my child to have to go through that as well. No child should have to go through that. What a crash course on how life can just be unfair, Mm -hmm. you know? And I I look at that time and I I could have become my mom. I could have said, yeah, well, that makes sense because life is always yeah. unfair. You never get what you want. And I refused to accept that, that it didn't mean that my life was over. So you were six months pregnant. And so it sounds like you went back home, right? Yep. We loaded up all my stuff and I went back to live with my mom, which is the last uh, thing I would have ever yeah. wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah, it was like you were on an eternal return back to a really bad place. Ah, yeah, yeah. I know that, you know, that you did end up in in Portland next, but how did you get there? How did you get from being back at your mom's place in a really stressful situation? How did you sort this out and figure out what you were going to do? Well, I knew I like the last thing I wanted just was to stay there. Seriously, less than a week after Dylan was born, I got two jobs <laughs> and I started working all the time yeah. and saving all of my money. And I didn't know where we were going to go, but I was like, we cannot stay here. And I had a friend mm-hmm. from Chicago, actually someone who I'd met through Ryan, who had gone to college with Ryan, who was like one of Ryan's favorite people. Like Ryan would talk all the time about how, he, how much he admired this person, Mark, like just was like his hero, like just one of the coolest people ever. And Mark had, when we lived in Chicago, only a couple months before Ryan died, Mark abruptly was like, I'm breaking up with my girlfriend of like seven years and I am moving to Portland, Oregon. And we were like, what? And I was like, what? Why would anyone ever move there? Because my dad lives in Oregon, has, you know, for decades now. And anytime I would go out there to visit him, I was like, Oregon sucks. Like, I don't know why you would want to move there when we have everything here in Chicago. And like in Oregon, when you go to the mall, they play country music at the teenager stores. Like, it's so weird. And he was like, no, no, Oregon's actually like really, really, like Portland is really, really cool. Like, it's like coming up. Like, I think it's going to be a thing and it's really, really cheap. And, uh, Anyway, so I went out there to visit with Dylan. You know, my family's out there, my dad, my stepmother and stuff. And there was something about it where I was like, I am a person who is still actively grieving every day, who like yeah. feels so lost and sad. And I feel like this place, there's something magical about it. I'd never been to a place where they were like, 
snow-capped mountains on the horizon. The west coast of the country still feels so alive because of all like the volcanic activity and stuff. It's like it feels like the most living part of the country. And I was like, I feel like I could move here and get better. Like I could recover from everything that's happened. The moment I got there, I was like, this is great. And it was lonely. No one wants to be friends with someone with a kid. Um, It took me years uh, to make friends there. It took me a really long time to find a job. It led to a thing. Like we moved to another part of town. I made all these friends. I had like a social circle, like an emotional safety net. I had a job. Like we were not, we were broke. I mean, read my essay for Close Horse. But I remember this as one of the happiest times of my life. Like just, it was magical. It did help me recover. Now, I think I probably thought like a year or two in that I was like all better. But I got to tell you, like it was going to take another decade to unpack all of that grief and pain of just oh, yeah. Ryan being gone, you know? Yeah, never mind your entire everything else. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I I a couple years into it, I was like I feel so much better. Like I have this optimism every day when I wake up about like what might happen today. Like that's an exciting feeling and I hadn't had that, you know, for a while there. And so I still may, I mean Portland has changed a lot. Mm-hmm. It is not as cool as it used to be, sorry mm-hmm. to say. But uh at that time, what a magical place to be a broke single parent. I can understand why that place would inspire you. I'm still so impressed that you were willing to pick up and, you know, like just weren't weighed by the sheer inertia of grief and having to provide for an infant and being so young and not knowing what you were going to do. Like, that's a lot. That's a lot to carry. It's amazing that by like by the force of like a sense of place and possibility, you were able to do that. My place of comfort is is a change. Uh, I think it's actually something that really brought Dustin and I together is that we can we feel comfortable in changing environments because his childhood is similar to mine, with just like a lot of moving around and upheaval. And so, you know, when you're always the new kid at school. It doesn't feel weird mm-hmm. anymore. And I had this belief that for so long, just moving forward at a constant high velocity had kind of kept me from experiencing a lot of pain like deeply and that I just needed to keep doing that. I needed to be full steam ahead yeah. into the next thing. Yeah. And like, was it hard? Yes. Were there times where I cried because I was really tired and Dylan lost a shoe and I didn't know how I was going to afford to replace it? Oh, that happened at least half a dozen times. Like things were really, really hard where I was like on my knees crying, like, yeah. will you please just go to sleep? You know, like anyone who has spent time with a small child knows that it is yeah. really, really hard. So you described um, in your in your essay, I think, it, you know, this was kind of a, a point where you had it together. You know, you and Dylan were living, you mentioned in a, in a townhouse in Portland and um, you had a retail management job, I think, at that point. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't have been – I'm pretty sure I was making $28,000 a year, just in case anybody's wondering if I was getting rich off of that job. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but for Portland, that was, like, pretty secure. Yeah, yeah. There was no luxury. I think it's so interesting thinking about, you know, your situation as a single parent and, you know, that you – had it all kind of barely together, but you were almost economically penalized 
when you got a raise at work, right? Because then you couldn't qualify for mm-hmm. um, childcare aid. Can you talk a little bit more about how fragile the safety net is based on your experience? I mean, this is why this is something that I'm so passionate about because it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people, and at least the government treats you this way, who believe that if you need government assistance, it's probably because you're lazy and you certainly can't be trusted to be honest about your circumstances or or work. And so even to just get a very small amount of food stamps, uh, the daycare assistance, and Medicaid for Dylan, uh, the amount of hoops I would have to jump through, the amount of hours I would have to go spend sitting in the office so that they could verify all the documents that I showed them that proved, in fact, that I was broke. You know, like you can't have any money in your checking account. Uh-huh. They need proof of that no one else lives with you. I had to get a letter from my landlord saying, no, I did not have roommates. I was paying the whole rent. God. I needed utility bills. You know, you name it. They needed to see it all on paper. And like, that's a lot of work, getting that kind of documentation and you're a single parent trying to work a retail job. And so in the beginning when I was making $8 an hour, I was able to get gov- free, free childcare. So I went to this babysitter, Cindy, who was basically a part of our family after a couple of years of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was like a, you know, like a home babysitter. She had like six kids. It was a great place for Dylan. And Cindy would get paid by the state. Mm-hmm. For Dylan coming there. So I would never give Cindy any money. You know, like it came right from her. Yeah. And because she, she was like certified, licensed, whatever. Um, I got a raise. It was $1 an hour. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And now the state didn't want to cover my child care anymore. So I was making before taxes 40 extra dollars a week. Um, and Cindy's general rate would have been five to ten dollars an hour. Yeah. So we're looking at, you know, remember, I'm not just going to work for 40 hours. I have to ride my bike there and back, you know? So we're yeah. looking at a few extra hours there anyway. I mean, we're looking at 200 to $400 a week in childcare yeah. with my $40 raise. And Cindy was like, no, you know what? You can just pay me $1 an hour. That's amazing. It'll be fine. And I was like, are you sure? And she's like, yeah, bring some food. And I was like, okay. She's like, this is, it's not fair. She's like, I know. And she's like, I get paid so much for the other kids. It's fine. And so that's what I was able to do with her. But I still was paying her more than $40 a week. So that raise was like canceled out. And we also lost our food stamps. It was like, what's the incentive for me to work hard at work? Right. If I am actually going to come out worse than without it. I mean, I, I would tell myself there's this light at the end of the tunnel where if I keep working, it gets better. But what about the interim period? Yeah, there's no logic to that math. No, there's there's not. And my job, like a lot of retail jobs, and this should, this should be so illegal. Like if I could campaign on one issue, if I ran for office, mm-hmm. it would be this. They did credit checks in order to promote mm-hmm. you. So I had bad credit only because my student loans were in default. I had never been evicted from my apartment. I paid all my other bills on time, but I just could not pay my student loans. I'd let them go into default when Ryan died because I had no job. Um, And they were like, well, we can't promote you because you have bad credit. You're a criminal risk. And so I was like in this situation where I'm like, okay, so I can't advance beyond making $9 an hour. Now I'm paying for daycare. I've lost all my other benefits. I can't get promoted because I have bad credit, but I can't pay off my student loans because of that. And this went on for another year. And then finally – they made a special exception for me where they had 
the regional LP, like loss prevention officer, come in and give me like a weird interrogation about my past in which he definitely made me feel like shit for being a single yeah. parent. But then they gave me the promotion. Yeah. And I took it because I was like, I, I'm desperate, you know, like I should have been like, fuck you. But of course that wasn't an option because when you're in that situation, you're yeah. trapped. And that makes me really angry. That's not fair. And I don't think like, I'm not my mom. I don't accept that life is unfair. Yeah, no, but that, that clearly is. And it just, it sort of underscores what we've been talking about previously. You know, when we were talking about the tax situation in your family, it's like you get into one hole and then it prevents you from pursuing the means that would get you out of it. So having mm-hmm. bad credit prevents you from then being able to make more money so that you can meet your basic expenses and pay off your debts. You know, like it, it just, yeah, it is a trap. It's a, it's a, it's a real tangible trap. And, um, you know, it, it makes me, it makes me angry hearing about you going through that. And, you know, it's interesting now to think about how the, you know, current administration is focusing on trying to provide some support to families um, by providing a check, a a child tax credit of, I think it's like $3,600 per child under the age of five. And the credit would start by the parents receiving six monthly payments of like $300. And then the rest would be paid um, as a tax refund. So, you know, when I think about getting $300 a month, like what that would have meant to you um, and Dylan, if that policy had been in place in your life, I mean, it, it sounds substantial. It would have changed our lives for sure. You know, the most money I would ever have in my checking account at any point during a year would be when I would get my income tax refund. And it would be like $1,000, you know? Yeah. Like that was the most money we would ever see at one time. And it meant tough decisions, you know? Like we we got by, but barely. It meant that like I couldn't go to the doctor, you yeah. know? It meant giving up other things. I, I mean, if we could have had a car so much sooner, the number of years – I was pedaling Dylan around on my bike mortifies me now. That sounds so dangerous. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny because um, my mom and my folks got divorced before I was four, and my mom moved to Boston with me and my brother. And she, um, we had a car, but she often used her bike to get around because the car, like, either wouldn't start or, you know, something happened to it. And, um, so I would be, I think on the back of the bike in a little seat and my brother would be in a little baby carrier on the front of her. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Boston does not have a good reputation in terms of its drivers. So incredibly dangerous. None of us were wearing helmets, of course. Um, but I was cool with it. (laughs) This is obviously like a, a moment that was, you were on your path, you know, career path. Um, and then you were cited by corporate at the store where you were a manager, right. To become a buyer. Did that mean leaving Portland and leaving this whole setup that you had worked hard to create? Yes. I've moved all over the country in my adult life and every move has been related to my career. And I've never once questioned in the moment that decision. I just go for it. And I think it's because my survival instincts are so, they're always top of mind. They control everything, right? So of course I couldn't turn this job down. Although I'm going to tell you, I told you I made $28,000 
working as a department manager in a really cheap city. I moved across the country to an East Mm -hmm. Coast city where the cost of living was substantially higher. Mm -hmm. And I got a raise to $32,000. Oh my goodness. Like what a shitty deal. Um, And so we were poorer here. Yeah. I once again had to have that like hope, uh, which, you know, faulty or otherwise that like it would lead to something better. And it did in time, but uh, I'm not saying that people should run, should make those decisions that way. Like, I don't know if I would have made the same decision if I went back in time. Yeah. I maybe would have stayed in Portland and gone to nursing school, you know? I don't know. It might have been better. Who knows? It's one of those sliding doors moments. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have no idea. Um, I mean, I I will tell you, I love buying. I love strategy and math and looking at data and making conclusions based on it and looking at clothes and trying to guess, like think about the people who would wear them and how do they relate to the customer that I'm trying to serve. Like I actually love that job. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just hate the industry around it. So let's, let's talk about, you know, this story that you alluded to about how you became known for having this legendary taste. You know, I think (laughs) I think it's so interesting because it's a nice compliment, right? It is. I mean, it shows that people think I'm cool and good at my job, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, definitely. You were cool. But it's also weird because you had all these other credentials, you know, in terms of like all of your math skills, being able to, um, you know, really get down in a spreadsheet and understand what the sales patterns were and achieving profit margin. Um, but you know, she fixated on taste. Um, and I want to know, like, what did this, what role do you think this played in your career ascent? You know, like it kind of goes back to passing and like, obviously you were smart and you had all these skills, but what did the, what did the taste side of the equation look like for you? How did you demonstrate it personally? Well, you know, I think this is when I had to start thinking about passing in a way that I hadn't before, even though I'd now spent quite a bit of time surrounded by people from a more affluent background than me, uh, being dumped into a buying office uh, is is where I started to realize that like, wow, uh, this is why I've never heard of anyone I know having this job because people like us don't get to have this job. Um, People who I worked with, they came from, you know, generational wealth. They were able to spend a lot of money on clothes and having fancy cars and all of the crazy amounts of grooming that you have to do to work Mm. to succeed in this industry. And I realized, I mean, I've actually, I've had conversations with other people in the industry uh, who have brought this up first and I'm like, oh my God, okay. It wasn't just me thinking this. There were three ways that you could succeed in buying or fashion as a whole. One is that you could be very beautiful and thin and Mm -hmm. any work you did didn't matter. Wow. Uh, You would be like the brand muse, you know, you could like, Everybody would pander to you, and the the standards for your work were different. Uh, Number two is that you could just be rich and connected. Um, And Mm -hmm. that meant that maybe your parents knew the people who were, like, in leadership of the company, and that would get you in the door. And then you would always, like, you know, have the most expensive clothes and be able to have conversations about, like, ski weekends and, you know, whatnot with Mm -hmm. the other wealthy coworkers. And so they would be like, you're one of us, right? The last one – I mean, you're probably already like, well, you're clearly not trading on those first two. So the last one must be the one. And that is that I am cool. If you're cool, which is a highly subjective word, you don't have to fall into those other two categories and automatically you get the pass. And so 
I've always been the person who's at my desk working and someone, another buyer comes to show me what they're thinking about buying to get my opinion. Because if I say it's good, then they're going to run with it. And I don't know who decided that I'm cool, okay? But I realized this pretty early on that I was like, this is the currency I'm trading on in this office. It's not that I'm really good at math. That's why the planners love me and teach me other stuff. That's great. But the reason that people talk about promoting me is that I am cool. So I'm going to play into that. So whereas my other coworkers were buying expensive brands of clothing, um, you know, like designer things that were premium and rare and the kinds of things you might read about and say nylon, for example, right. or they were going yeah. to open opening ceremony and dropping a thousand dollars. Well, I didn't have that luxury. So I strictly wore vintage clothing to work all the time. And I had my yeah. own unique style. And my friends are cool. I like interesting, creative people. So I knew a lot of people in bands and people who were making hip hop and people who wrote books or painted or designed their own stuff or made jewelry. And that reputation made me the cool one, you know? Yeah. Um, And like for better or worse, I'm not trying to brag here. Like this is just like I saw which role I could embody in that office and I just went with it. I was like, I'm the cool person. Well, they needed you clearly um, because in fashion, there's the safeness of luxury and the things that you can only attain through money. And, you know, so there's there are people who have access to that, but access to cool is not something money can buy. You know, like that, that's about genuinely being part of scenes and, you know, just having a sense of what's going on. You know, people that have the money and the security don't always have access to the trends that are coming up that haven't exploded yet. I'm wondering, like, how did it feel to have, you know, be around conversations, you know, because it's infuriating in the fashion industry. Um, you know, someone is is credited for having a great eye or being able to pull something off. And really, it just means that that person is beautiful and thin. I mean, it sucks. It feels unfair. Being a woman is so hard anyway. And the things you need to grapple with all the time, like I can tell myself one million times a day that, you know, like what's inside me counts the most and is like who I am and what people love. But like, I still worry constantly about how I look. I suspect actually all people of all genders do that, um, no matter how much we've been told not to judge a book by its cover, right? And I, it was hard for me because I felt like I I was the one that they came to because I had the brains, like we needed that, but like we were never, like they weren't ever going to want to put me on the Instagram or in Mm. the brand campaign or do a thing about my apartment or anything because I didn't have the look. And it fucked me up. I mean, I remember one year of well, I will just tell you this. I, whenever I'm having a really hard time at work, and I think this is not uh, just a fashion industry thing, uh, but just a like human nature thing. Whenever I'm having a really hard time at work, and I feel like really powerless to what's happening around me, I just stop eating because that makes me feel like it's something that I have control over. And yeah. so, it's not abnormal to go into any of these buying offices and see a lot of eating disorders playing out in real time, all the time, and lots mm-hmm. of other just extreme behaviors relating to one's appearance. And that stuff would mess with me. It sounds like it was a real tightrope that you were walking. I think what really strikes me is that you had all these qualifications. You were so um, deeply talented, and yet you felt inadequate on the job for these very superficial reasons. 
and not fitting in. And I wonder how that was reinforced around the workplace, like what kinds of conversations went on or a specific incident that made you feel like, okay, this is something where I have to be on my guard or where I just, I don't fit. I mean, something that's been kind of a a phenomenon that has developed along with the rise of specifically Instagram, but even pre that when all the brands had to have a blog, remember that, uh, is that, Mm -hmm. you know, they needed a lot of content. They needed constant content. Let me tell you, you got to feed Instagram every day. I I know the struggle. Um, And it was like, oh, hey, we've got this like really cheap resource of of generating content. We'll use our employees. And this is everywhere Mm -hmm. I've worked. So it would be like, let's get this one person to write a blog post about their favorite albums or something. We'll take some pictures of them. Or let's just take a picture of a bunch of people together in outfits and we'll put it on Instagram. And even though I felt like I was a much beloved member of all these teams and worked really hard and made those companies so much money and was known for my legendary taste. I never once got asked to participate any of that in any of that. And you might say, mm-hmm. who cares? Why let them make more money off of you? But that hurts when you realize of course. that they want what you can do, but they don't want you maybe. Like, like mm-hmm. I am a very stylish person. I am have no problem bragging about that. I have I do have really great style. Uh, I am not a physically hideous person. Um, even if I were, it wouldn't matter. Um, I don't know why I, it's like, they were like, Oh, you're just like not cute enough. You know? Well, there are such narrow ideals and thinking back through the past few years, really through Trump's presidency, there's just this real push to get beyond, um, the ideals that had been touted, you know, I think through social media and Instagram, for women for a long time. I mean, like just white, blonde, thin women. Yeah. And every job, every job, white, blonde, thin women, which sounds yeah. so like, oh, are we talking about the fifties? No, we're literally talking about right now. And, mm-hmm. you know, I remember this moment at Nasty Gal, which was of all of the places I've worked, the most overtly fucked up when it came to body image. Like, our CEO, Sophia, would send out emails about to the whole office with bikini diet inspiration or talk about how fat she was in front of us. And I mean, she's like a tiny person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was in a meeting and uh, our CEO, who was not Sophia at this point, Sophia had stepped down, was talking about how she had been really looking for this one Gucci belt, but they only had it in a size medium, which was so unfair. And if any of us in the room were a si- were big enough to wear a size medium, which she doubted, uh, there was a Gucci belt out there for us. And I like slid down in my chair with shame as a lifelong size medium. <laughs> like I just was like, yeah, why am I so gross? Why can't I be an extra small? What is wrong with me? Like to be a grown woman, someone's mother wishing that you could be an extra small still is yeah. Like if I had think about all the emotional energy I spent over the years wishing that I had a different body than the one I have, if I could have put that into some other project, <laughs> what would I have accomplished by now? You know, to think about all the times I would be at work responsible for millions of dollars, mm-hmm. fretting about how fast I could become an extra small. Yeah, even at my last job, people were just ah. Uh, I would hear them say stuff. I was in a meeting where a stylist was like. 
I'll try to make a size 10 look cute, but it's just really hard, like talking about a model. And I was like, wow, I can't believe you felt empowered to say that out loud. Yeah. You know, like that's the environment that you can't even feel like you have to keep your evil, mean thoughts in. You feel like you can say it out loud because everyone else here is going to agree with you. Sure. There's no way it would be objectionable to talk about being any other size in a negative way. Like that's safe territory. Yeah. I mean, this is like a whole other topic, but it does... It does relate to, I think, what I wanted to talk about next, which is just kind of the overall feeling, I think, in in the fashion industry as the pandemic began, you know, given how its values are skewed and how, you know, even its workers are more conscious of like, you know, how much they weigh, you know, than uh, the ethics of the work they're doing. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, it doesn't surprise me that you found yourself in this place where um, you were faced with having to cancel a bunch of orders, right? Because lockdown was beginning. Mm -hmm. And you tried to raise that maybe there was a different way to handle this because you were aware of the economic impact on the workers um, who made these garments, you know, that it would be devastating when these orders were canceled. And so you, you tried addressing this with your company to see what, what could be done. And it, it sounds like it fell entirely on deaf ears and then you were laid off. So, Mm -hmm. you know, do you feel like, you know, in, in all capitalist industries, there is some kind of race to the bottom and there's some kind of reliance on cheap labor in order to increase profitability. But in the fashion industry, it just seems like the excuse for operating this way goes beyond following an economic model. You know, is it is it almost like taste and class reinforce the idea that people of an economic means, you know, people who are on sort of the, the working end of the supply chain you know, do you think that it's felt that they just want different things um, and that they don't endure the same struggles that, you know, people in developed countries do, people who are wearing the clothes they're making, and that maybe um, the standard of life that they have, you know, if it's lower, that that's, that's acceptable. Sorry, that was a mouthful. Wow, there's, I have like so much to say there. I'm going to try to stay organized about it. <laughs> I like all these feelings developing as you talked. I was like, oh yeah, that and that. So one thing you hear in every job, every business in the fashion industry is that like, we're all about serving our customer. We're here for our customer, right? Mm -hmm. We care about the customer. We don't care about the people working behind the curtain to serve the customer. I mean, that's a fundamentally flawed statement anyway, because If these brands really cared about their customer the way they say they do, they would make clothes that fit and last longer. I mean, that's like a whole other thing, right? Like they wouldn't sell you shitty clothes that only kind of fit you and make you feel bad about your body so that you buy more. So that's just a lie anyway. But we know that they give the most care allegedly Mm -hmm. to their customer and Mm -hmm. fuck everyone else. And so early, early on when I was working retail, My friend Alana said to me something that has stuck with me since then, because for me, being like, I don't know, 25, it was one of the most nihilist things (laughs) that someone had ever said to me, which she said, no one in this company cares about you. And if our district manager had to give up his free lunches, he would fire you tomorrow. None of us matter to anyone. And I was like, whoa, 
like, okay, yes, you're right. But whoa, to hear that out loud. And I mean, she was right, right? Like we were all disposable and she, she knew that. And I, you know, went through my career knowing that I was disposable to a certain extent, but you always believe that. And I always would wonder, like, is this me coming from like my abusive, very unloving childhood thinking that there, with anyone out there, I could earn their love and be meaningful to them. Maybe like if I just tried hard enough, like I'm going to be the one worker that's not disposable. Yeah. You know, I get into the corporate office and I realize right away that like the people working in the corporate office who is, as I've mentioned, for the most part, of course, there are exceptions. They come from a higher socioeconomic class than the people working in the stores working in the warehouse, and certainly working in the garment factories, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We know that. They have no concept who's doing any of that work. Remember, I was like the exception that I knew what it was like to work in a store. And so all of the other workers outside of that office are othered. You know, they have different lives. Those people who work retail – it's because they didn't try hard enough somewhere else or they're not smart enough to get a better job. That's Most of the people I worked with in retail had like bachelor's degrees and or master's degrees because the economy is that fucked up and has been, you know? And so so that's just ridiculous. I worked with so many talented artists, musicians, you name it at that time. Um, but that's how they view those people. I don't, I'm sure they think the warehouse people are just like these dullards mm-hmm. who are their best, their biggest asset is they can carry things or something. That's my assumption based on conversations I've heard. And the workers, I mean, time and time again, the garment workers, it's like, no, they want those jobs. Yes. They're glad to have those jobs. I worked with someone who said, Hey, I went to Vietnam and I saw the kids who work in those factories and they want those jobs. They're glad to have them. Oh my goodness. I guess, yeah, technically they are glad to have those jobs because the option is starving. Yeah. You, when you choose, you know, if those are your two options, you're going to choose the job. And th- th- it's just a constant dismissal of like, well, things are different over there. Mm-hmm. Those people have different lives. They have different priorities. And I, I call bullshit on that. I understand that is how it makes it easier to sleep at night, mm-hmm. to think that people over there only need to get paid 25 cents a day and they're fine. Yeah. It's a hard thing to balance when you think about the wild amounts of consumption within these corporate offices that I talked about, like the constant shopping and the constant grooming. And now in the dawn of Instagram, it turned about constant vacationing yeah. with like epic photos, you oh, know, yeah. like and lifestyling your house pre-Instagram. I feel like no one went anywhere, I swear. Yeah, travel did get huge. And so they see this luxury that they live in and they just assume like, well, things are different in my life. I get to have these things. These other people, they're fine. They want different things. And the truth is everybody wants to wear clothes that make them feel nice and go on trips and be around people they love and eat good food and get good night's sleep and live in a cozy house. Like it doesn't matter where you live. Right. You know? And so I I just – I got into the corporate level and I thought now I'm not disposable because I – and making them so much money. They mm-hmm. can't live without me. And even at my last job where I had really onboarded all of our vendors, all of our brands, convinced them to work with us, hired the team, trained the team, set up a lot of our processes, I was still disposable. And it's a hard it's a hard feeling to wrap your head around. I mean, I will tell you that 
I still feel sad about losing my job, not because I miss that job, but because it feels like a rejection of me. Mm -hmm. And it's like when someone breaks up with you before you get the chance to break up with them. Yeah. As someone who's put a lot of time and parked a lot of my identity in work, it was um, hard to realize that yeah, despite all my efforts, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't what the company wanted. They could shift their priorities very easily. And it was a wake up call to me that we all have to think of ourselves as much more than our jobs, not use, at least in my case, I, I feel like overworking was a way of not paying attention to a lot of other things, mm-hmm. including what was going on in the world. I agree. I agree. So, you know, I was just so hardworking that I like, you know, I was too exhausted to, to look around, you know, and see what was happening. So, you know, I think some of those are like, you know, I, I blame myself, but I also partly think about the culture at large, you know, and, and our, our work cultures and how we get sucked into these, um, sucked into, the directives of these companies and our success and making sure that they succeed and tune out so much of what's important. Oh, totally. And you know, when you're working in these corporate environments, no matter what the industry is, you sort of, it's like every day you go to work in like a terrarium. And so the environment is created in one way or another, and it doesn't reflect necessarily what's happening outside of that environment. And it's certainly doesn't necessarily show you the big picture of what you're doing even. So I can assure you that most people who work in the fashion industry have no idea about who and how the stuff they're designing and buying is being made, period. We don't talk about it. Uh, The few times it's come up in the office, it's been very discouraged. Um, It's just not something we're supposed to think about. And so the first few years of my career, I have this acute – I mean – very small inkling of like various things I'd read over the years. Like Nike was always getting in trouble for like child labor and paying poverty wages. And that would come up if you were the person like me who read a lot of really more liberal leaning activist leaning media, you would encounter these things. And so you have this vision that there were sometimes things that were not good happening, but like you kind of were like expected to suspend your disbelief that those were outliers. Those were exceptions, not the norm. And you know, you've, you're in this team and you're working so hard all the time for something, I don't know what, and you feel like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm safe here. This is like a family. We're told to look at this like a family in a weird way, a family that doesn't let you take off when you're sick. But, uh, there was this moment pretty early in my career that made me start to see how little regard for many other elements of the industry and the people impacted by it that my employer and most employers had, which was mm-hmm. as the financial crisis hit, unsurprisingly, as I've talked about here on the podcast before, clothing was decimated, <laughs> like retail in general, right? People were not shopping. It's the first thing that happens. You don't go buy clothes and computers and shoes and earrings and stuff, right? Yeah. And so it impacted our company pretty badly. And the decision was made that uh, if we could still preserve our profit margin, it would actually make the company come out ahead in terms of total profit at the end of the year, even with lower Mm -hmm. sales, because we were definitely going to sell less stuff. That was definitely going to happen. Why not make more profit off of each thing we've sold? And I hope I explained that in a very clear way, because I get really nerdy about retail math. That's literally (laughs) what it's called, retail math. It's its own version of math. Um, Anyway, so... 
the decision was made that we had to maximize the profit we made on every single thing that we sold. And so we were all called together into a meeting and the head of product for the company who was a guy who screamed at people constantly and humiliated them. It was one of those great, great guys. He was like, you're all going to go back to your desk. You're going to print out your on order and you're going to reach out to every vendor. I want you to call them on the phone. Don't email them. And you're going to ask them for a blanket 10% discount on every single order that is in production on its way or planned for down the road for the rest of the year. And that's a really big ask because we were already squeezing them for every cent all the time. Like the, mm-hmm. I, I'm like a really cheery negotiator where I'm just like, well, it has to be 325 and that's that. And then they're like, okay, <laughs> you know, I'm not like, how about five? How about four? Okay. How about this? No, I'm just like, here's right. real talk. This is what it needs to be. Or I can't write it. Can you just do that? Like, and then they're like, yeah. And then I get the price. People are always like, what's yeah. the secret to your negotiating? And I'm like, just being really straightforward and cheery about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I'd already <laughs> squeezed every vendor for every last cent already. And I knew 10%, if they were only making a couple cents off of everything they sold us, 10% was going to be really brutal. And so I got on the phone and started calling on my vendors. And of course, they all were like, Amanda, you're like the loveliest person. You're always so nice and honest with me. Of course, I'll give you the discount. It's really, really hard. Um, is there any way we can make this up later in the year? You know, we're like having those conversations. And the meanwhile, this boss is going around screaming at people who aren't actively on the phone. Uh, it's mm-hmm. like a really chaotic moment. And I get off the phone. I've taken all these discounts. I update them in the system. And I'm thinking in that exact moment as I hear this guy screaming at other people that – Nobody cared about all the small businesses that were, gonna, that were serving us, that we were buying from, that were going to go out of business because we just squeezed them on costing. Mm-hmm. And nobody cared about how really those, those savings were going to be pushed on the factory, which meant the workers were going to get paid 10% less too. And that yeah. was this like big moment very early in my career where I was like, wow, leadership in this industry does not care about people. It's not even just the people working in the factories. It's these small businesses that would act as vendors for us to make our product. You know, people who had kids in college. I I would – every time I would go to an appointment, I would ask about their kids. I would get shown the pictures. We'd have conversations, you know? Like I knew all of these people. And that stuck with me for a really long time. And this year when we started doing the cancellations, it was like that to an exponential degree where I was like businesses are going to close right now. Yeah. And brands did. Brands went out of business. People lost yeah. their jobs. And it was like, but we have hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. We brag about it all the time when we're applying for credit. And like these things, we paid so little for them in the first place. Why can't we just take the orders? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, like, can't we think about the people impact here? And, you know, it's, it was – it was just like, listen, every order we cancel is a few more weeks of us having paychecks. Like that was basically the sentiment there. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to believe that. It just like years previous asking everybody for that 10% discount, I was like, this is how I keep having a job. Oh, and yeah. by the way, that year when we took that 10% discount from everyone and they canceled our holiday party and they put a freeze on uh, wage increases and promotions for two years that whole time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The company made a record level of profit that it had never made before. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's how they did it. That's how they did it. That was like, yeah. uh, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, it's just crazy. Um, and it's, it's interesting that you had that experience, 
you know, 10, 12 years prior, you know, during the the recession in 2008, and then it came back, but even stronger. And, uh, you know, at the start of the pandemic, because I mean, now you're talking about not just negotiating lower um, costs, but canceling orders, which is just it's flabbergasting because this is like a huge trend, obviously, that's rippling through the whole industry. So, you know, it sounds like it, it awakened a sense of activism within you, you know, a, a feeling that like you just couldn't align yourself with this any further. I'd always felt like there was something wrong and there was something unfair and that like nobody was talking about it. Nobody talks about fashion. They'll talk about the environmental impact, which is very important. Don't get me wrong. It keeps me up at night. But we hear a lot less people talking about the impact on people. And, you know, I got to tell you, Carrie, look, those conversations canceling those orders were brutal. I was having nightmares. Like, Mm -hmm. basically, my assistants would reach out and try to cancel the order. And like, if they didn't have any luck, I would jump in on the emails and like start having conversations. And then I started, you know, I had really good relationships with a lot of these people. Some of them, in fact, most of them I had worked with at previous jobs I had bought from them. So these are like, like, they're more than just like, transactional relationships. You know, I've known them for years. These sales reps and like brand owners that I was talking to, they were crying on the phone, Carrie. Like, because the, like one who I'd worked with forever was like, I'm going to lose my job. I'm really scared. And I was like, I'm scared too. Like, I, I don't know what to do. Like, what if I talked to them and I said, we'll write more orders in the fall. Like, would that help? Like, tell me what I can do. I mean, these are like the kinds of conversations I was having. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing, nothing that you would be able to promise them. No, no. That sales rep lost her job like a month later because very large part are huge cancellations. Yeah. So had you been politically active prior um, or has this been something that I think is, I don't know, more um, a bigger part of your life now after that whole experience? No, I've always been a rabble rouser. I mean, I would go to like socialist meetings in college. (laughs) But, you know, I also was like working. Like much like how work took priority over my creativity, it also took – it took priority over my uh, political activity, which is not, did not mean that I wasn't actively signing up people to vote for every election and going to protests when I could. And I've always been the person in the office who you have to come to to see if, you know, maybe something you're doing is slightly racist. You know, is it okay yeah. if we sell this print? You're the one who knows. You know all the social justice stuff. Like I'm that wow. person, the the wow. conscience. You know, I'm the person you come to and I explain to you what impeachment means. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I I I know what you're talking about. Not that I was that person around the office, but I picture people I worked with who were just much more politically engaged and on it and were burdened with um, having to kind of, yeah, make sure that the company didn't fuck something up, which was a difficult situation. I'm curious now that you're out of that realm and you're able to focus on the things that matter to you, what kinds of activism and advocacy have you been doing lately to address workers' rights and to help workers? Um, you know, I know that you're involved in helping people with their unemployment now. Um, but what what kinds of things are you able to focus on tangibly? I mean, definitely helping people with unemployment is a big consumer of my time right now because 
and I'm going to write an essay about this for the blog, the unemployment system is so nightmarish. It's technologically doomed, but it also requires a level of tech savvy or ability to research that a lot of people don't have. And so Mm -hmm. I definitely spend a lot of time every day helping people with that. Um, I've been working with a group called Unemployed Action, and we are really fighting for different policies around unemployment. You know, uh, we were doing a pretty big campaign actually to get the tax reduction on unemployment benefits, um, which worked. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a lot of like organizing, talking to different people in the press, um, you know, tweeting, you know, meetings, talking about stuff, whatever, uh, strategizing. And so that's been really exciting to me because I think we don't think of unemployed people as workers. Um, And I think, especially in the United States, we look at unemployed people as lazy because, you Mm -hmm. know, your value is your work. Um, I hate that. Um, And like I said, people have been really suffering. I think that even people, I mean, you know that I went three months Without getting yeah. any money. <laughs> like, it was terrible. Um, people thought, like, oh, so what? You lost your job. At least you got that unemployment. And I'm like, it's 20% of what I made before. 20%. Yeah. And it doesn't come all yeah. the time. <laughs> no. um, it's insane. So this organization that you're working with, is it is it state-specific? Is it national? It's national. Because like the big, the big dream scenario that we've been really campaigning for is that unemployment is no longer administered by states. It's administered by the federal government. Now that's a massive change, but there is like, I mean, I could go on and on about this, but the spectrum of benefits across this country is kind of wild. Like I want to say Massachusetts gives the highest amount of unemployment and it's significantly higher than where I live in Pennsylvania. I'll tell you that. Um, but then mm-hmm. there are states in the South that are giving like $130. I mean, it's, it's very, very bad. Yeah. And those are the maximums, you know? Um, so yeah. we would like to standardize that. That's not really fair to anyone. And, you know, these technological systems have like that are used to administer unemployment have been neglected in all these states. Like in Florida, they were literally printing out applications and submitting them by hand. Mm-hmm. Um, if this were federalized, it would be a lot smoother. I mean, I'm obviously like a raging socialist. So I'm like the more of the social safety net we can bring in house, the better. Because also things like food stamps and cash benefits and you know daycare assistance and medicaid these are all administered by the states as well even though they use yeah. federal funding and i think that it just needs to be brought all in house yeah it does feel like there are layers of bureaucracy to deal with and some states are clearly um better equipped than others and yes. so you're right it does create this you know unfairness that's arbitrary because of the borders that you live within so that's that's amazing that you have been involved so heavily with this and was it when you became unemployed that you found this this work or were you involved prior? Oh, definitely when I became unemployed. I didn't know anything about the unemployment system. I've worked always. You know, yeah. I didn't know how bad it was. Um, and I'd never heard a whisper about it either way. Yeah. Um, I think people are too afraid to speak up about how bad it is. And so it's been it's been really interesting to learn so much about it and different states' policies and you know, some states still want people to be out searching for jobs, even though there's a pandemic. Um, the expectation is that you should take any job. So even if you made $100,000 a year before, you should now take a minimum wage job at Taco Bell and be happy with it. And that's not fair either. Just get off unemployment. Just get off it. Yeah, yeah. That's the goal. That's the goal. The goal is not 
financial security, uh, you know, a quality of life or a living wage. It is like get off unemployment. And like, that's some really flawed thinking. Let Trust me, as a person who has been turned down even for minimum wage jobs in the past year, I am like, I am so fucked. <laughs> like, I, this is a fucked up system. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's crazy. Um, so I'm so excited that you're writing an essay about this because while I was a little bit aware of what you were doing, um, obviously my entry point to you is close horse and all the work that you do on that. And, um, and then I know that you're also the, is it COO of a zero waste grocery store? CFO, but we don't have, we're not like in business. We don't have any, we have, we're looking for investors, but definitely we're talking lots of spreadsheets and strategic thinking about budgeting. Um, and I just want to say that project, uh, no pack foods, uh, is zero waste grocery store. It'd be the first one in the country and all, every one who works there is paid beyond a living wage and has incredible benefits that is baked into the financial plan. So when I'm on Instagram or on the podcast raging that you can make profit and treat your workers well, I know that for a fact. Right. <laughs> like the math works out. You were running those numbers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I actually have run the numbers and I see I see how it plays out. So, uh I'm not asking or demanding anything that isn't realistic. Yeah. No, that's incredible. Um I mean, I guess all of this is to say it's such a you're involved in so many things, it's such a tapestry of um of activity around change and around creating equal and better workplaces and you know, I'll just say personally, like I was panicked signing up for unemployment and, you know, the, the uh, website at New York state in New York state was not, um, it was a little bit feeble at first. It took a couple of weeks to be able to get a claim to go through. <laughs> yes. Yes. I know this feeling well, <laughs> but that was the extent to which I could engage, you know, like a, I was mortified to be enrolling in unemployment and b just dealing with that um, I get a little bit like windy around technology. I'll say like a little bit like, <laughs> a faulty website was like, Ooh, like this was, this was more than I could really handle. The fact that you've also gotten involved in this national organization to fix the system. Um, it, that's just very inspiring to me. So I'm glad that you're writing more about that. And I'm sure our listeners will be interested in learning more about it. I certainly am because it's one thing to navigate these things on your own. It's quite another to think bigger picture. So I'm I'm very impressed. Thanks. I mean, I just couldn't not do something about it. I think that I've spent so much of my life having to just like be sympathetic do the bare minimum, but have to take care of myself, like focus on my job, that losing my job gave me the freedom to really do what I care and execute it in a big way. Like I have looked at the posts I've already made on Instagram this month for Labor Month, and I'm like, wow, uh, if I ever had a potential interviewer, for my for a job, uh, look at my Instagram. I'm not getting hired. <laughs> and you know what? Fine. Like I want better, and we need to ask for it now. This is the time. Yeah. Workers, all of us, we're all workers. We're more vulnerable than ever because yeah. they know that we are hungry for jobs, that we are scared, and that we will take less money, less benefits, and more work. And 
at the same time, there's been this feeling, I think, in areas of the workforce where, you know, things were humming along with the job and the economy. And so the idea that you were vulnerable, like, I I don't think it occurred to a lot of people. And, you know, now that reality has come home to roost. And so I do hope that it brings about a real change in values and a real sense that you can't expect your, your job to take care of you. And you can't expect that a company is taking care of people in general and that these are things that you have to be constantly vigilant for. And like, why is that okay? I think back a a lot about my years in the fashion industry. And like, if you compare the pay and benefits of that industry with say the tech industry, there is a massive gap in terms of all of that. And this is a primarily female workforce especially when we're talking about buying, product development, production, design. Mm -hmm. Terrible maternity leave policies at most of these companies. Terrible pay and benefits. Not great health insurance. It's impossible to take time off. It's impossible to take time off to even go get like a checkup at a doctor. And I don't know why we think that's okay. Especially when I look at fashion being so shitty and being – you know, primarily fueled by women both doing the work and serving as the like source of the income as the customers. Why are we okay with that? If you think you're feminist, if you identify as feminist, then you need to tackle the fashion industry like ASAP. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it is fascinating. And, you know, going back a little bit to this infrastructure plan, it has some tenants in it that are meant to take care of workers and specifically women, you know, it's become kind of buzzy recently. I feel like there were like three different articles that popped up on my phone yesterday about the census and the birth rate dropping. Oh my God. I have so many feelings there. I have been thinking about it nonstop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's been this real contradiction between hustling and having a career and working hard. And then suddenly it's like, oh my goodness, why aren't you having babies? Yeah, we're not going to support you in any way, but like, could you do that? I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel I, I actually most of my female friends do not have children. Yeah. And I would assume at this point are not going yeah. to. And for many of us, it, it was the financial aspect of it. Like we just couldn't afford it. I mean, I have friends who ha- have wanted children so badly, yeah. but feel as though they can't afford yeah. it. Um, and that, I mean, you know, I would not have Dylan if it hadn't been thrust upon me accidentally, if you will, because I would have never felt like I had the money to do it. And to be honest, I did not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, just to be clear, just because I was able to be a single parent and struggle through it does not mean that everyone should. Yeah. I mean, listening to this story, I think it's pretty clear that you made it through some tremendous odds. And, um, you know, now it's looked at, you know, now there's sort of a, a, a stepping back and reckoning with like, gee, our social systems, you know, make this really difficult um, to support a family. And, you know, maybe we should do something about that. And I, I can't help but feel on your behalf, like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> you know, that would have been nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I think, you know, I hear people all the time being like, well, I had to pay my student loans. I don't know why other people shouldn't have to. And I'm like, just because things sucked for you doesn't mean they should suck for everyone. You know, I was incredibly abused and neglected as a child, but I don't think that's a good idea for all children so that they can be better in school. You know what I mean? Like that's like, no, 
get rid of the bootstrap myth. And I really want to reinforce to everyone, if you're listening to this and you're like, wow, this Amanda's story is such an inspiring story about how you can like work really hard and overcome obstacles. I'm going to tell you that that is like not what my story is Mm -hmm. at all. My story is survival. I did not move up into some middle-class, easier lifestyle. I do not own a home. Mm -hmm. I do not actually own a car. The car that my husband and I have, his parents gave him. I mean, like, we don't have a lot of fallback wealth. Uh, We certainly no one would sell us a house right now. Um, And having a car, a house, who knows what else could have happened if I hadn't had all these other obstacles along the way. And I'm not like a materialistic person, but like owning a house would be pretty sick. Like not going to lie. It would give me a sense of security. But I also want to say that the sacrifices along the way are real. Like not going to a dentist for 10 years or all the times I was sick and couldn't see a doctor because they didn't have the money. Or, you know, I've talked about this on the show. I broke my jaw in a bike accident, couldn't afford to get it treated. My face is a little lopsided now. I can see it. And I shouldn't have had to make those choices between rent or healthcare. You know? (laughs) Like, Like, Let's change this. And I just, I want to just reinforce again, this is not some heartwarming story of determination and hard work. This isn't like the American dream playing itself out right in front of you. It's not. Yeah. It is a story of like, somehow I am a tough old broad and I can get through shit, but that doesn't mean I should have had to get through shit the way that I did. No, no, it does not. Um, And I feel like we really just scratched the surface. I'm sure you're going to get a lot more messages from people and a lot more questions. And so this mission that I was on to, you know, (laughs) somehow like put your life story out there so that, (laughs) so that you could like, you know, just have it out there and move on and focus on other things. I'm, I'm afraid that might not happen, but um, I will say that, you um you have several books to fill and i know that's still a dream of yours and so count me in on rooting for you to make that a reality thank you thank you well amanda i have enjoyed this conversation so much thank you thank you so much for doing it and do you have anything else that you want to tell us i mean like i said i could tell you guys stories all year. Um, So I guess I'll have to save it for the blog or another episode. But of course, if anybody has any questions, um, you know, I don't know, thoughts, please, please reach out to me. I feel like personal stories are so important. I think that, you know, there's always been that saying that nobody knows exactly where it originated. I've looked very hard, but the personal is political. And Mm -hmm. I feel like all of our beliefs, all of the things we fight for, they are rooted in our own personal stories. And I feel like sharing them with other people helps them see their lives in more sharp focus and makes those issues real to them. And that is how I let myself be talked into doing this episode. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for doing it. You've created a platform for people to express their their own stories. And I I absolutely agree with you. It It is a path towards you know greater connection and empathy to what what's going on so thank you by, for doing that and um for just getting into a lot of personal stuff today yeah and thank you to everyone who listened to this whole thing <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. I know this was a supersized one, so thanks for seeing it all the way through to the end. There will not be a second episode this week because this episode was a lot of work, <laughs> and I know you need a lot of time to listen to it. Thank you so much to Carrie for making this happen, for asking the best questions, for assisting on editing, and just generally keeping the project on time and in tip-top shape. She's the resident Virgo of CloseHorse.World, and I'm so glad that I get to work with her. This was a tough episode to record, I'm going to be honest, because I often feel uncomfortable talking about myself, and I've lived with an almost debilitating sense of shame about my background and my experiences. There is a level of shame that comes from survival, from surviving trauma, and I know a lot of you can understand that. Carrie was such an amazing interviewer, making me feel comfortable enough to talk about things that honestly, most people in my life don't even know. This was a tough episode to edit because I cried so many times through some of the really painful moments, but I also feel glad that I've reached a point where I can talk about these things. And I hope that by doing this, you heard something that will help you feel more open about your own life. Like Carrie and I said, there are about 1,000 other things that we never got around to discussing. So if you have more questions, send them my way. I'm going to do a special Instagram Live this Friday night at 8 p.m. where I'll answer your questions about me, about this conversation, and really anything else relating to it. Tell me how this episode made you feel. You can send your questions, your comments, whatever, via email. You can call the Close Horse Hotline, or you can DM me on Instagram, and you'll find me there at Close Horse Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, of course, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. I'm required to tell you that at the end of every episode, right? If you would like to support my work here on the podcast, Find out more information at patreon.com slash podcast. And if you're not a Patreon person, I get it. It's complicated. It's a long-term commitment. You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Thank you again for all of your support, for listening to me talk about myself for all this time, and for coming back again and again for another episode. It means so much to me. If you'd like to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. And don't forget to check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. A recent review on Apple Podcasts said, quote, if Amanda's podcast were parts of a mullet, Close Horse would be the business in the front, and this one is the party in the back. That was a great review. Thank you so much. And please check out The Department. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. And I'm just going to go ahead and for a second time, thank the incredible Carrie Whitkin, my favorite Virgo, for her amazing partnership on this episode. Bye. (laughs) 